How's that for a slice of fried gold? Are you thinking this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. I can't do that. It's a lion! It's a lion! It's a lion! I guess everyone's a title one could scare them. Well, hello, and welcome to Cinema Shock. It's the podcast exploring the stories behind your favorite cult and genre films. We do all the research so that you don't have to. We're the three guys that tell you everything you need to know about your favorite movies and the people who made them. So the next time you're caught up in a nerdy movie conversation, not only will you know what is going on, you might actually be the expert. I'm one of your hosts, Gary Horn. And I'm your other host, Justin Bishop. And I'm the Dancing Freak. Writer, comedian, Mr. Todd A. Davis. Thank you so much for joining us for our fourth chapter in our series covering the work of Mr. Sam Raimi, titled Sam Raimi, The Entertainer. I once dated a girl with a wooden leg. I had to break <laughs> it off. It's a, good, it's a good joke. That's it really a solid, is. That's solid that's comedy. A, that's a good joke. Too bad uh, his career didn't get very far after that joke, though. <laughs> So speaking of careers, at this point in his career, Sam Raimi had uh, he'd been a professional filmmaker for nearly a decade, although he had yet to make a movie with a major Hollywood studio. He'd kind of flirted with Hollywood back on Crime Wave. We know how that went, but that was a very small studio. He had not yet worked with a major studio in Hollywood. Then after Evil Dead 2, Raimi started discussing several ideas for his follow up film, including another Evil Dead sequel. But one project in particular started to gain traction in in part because it fit with a rising trend in Hollywood in the late 1980s, the superhero movie, uh, a genre that was starting to be seen as financially viable in Hollywood thanks to the success of Tim Burton's Batman in 1989. Most specifically, the marketing department. (laughs) Well, yeah, yeah. (laughs) The resulting film is not based on a particular comic book, but it takes its inspiration from many of the comics and the films that Raimi devoured as a youth, Uh, The movie we're talking about is, of course, Darkman. Who? No foolish heroics, if you please. Is. Darkman. They destroyed everything he had. All that he loved. Everything that he was. Now... Crime has a new enemy, and justice has a brand new face. I was afraid that you wouldn't want me anymore. Of course I still want you. The good news is that I know who's behind our little troubles of late. Finish it. He has the power to look like any man. They still both sons of witches! But he is unlike any man. I gotta tell you something about me. He's a cockroach. Think you're killing? And he pops up someplace else. In the darkest hour. Julie, who's the real monster here? There's a light that shines on every human being but one. From director Sam Raimi. Dark Man. 
let's consider this podcast's points one by one. One, we're definitely going to talk longer than 99 minutes. Two, we're definitely going to get into spoilers. So if you're wondering, what is it about the movie? What secrets does it hold? Well, we're going to tell you. Could it, can you imagine if we didn't talk longer than 99 minutes, though? <laughs> I'd get out yeah. and my wife would just be like, what What happened? Is everything okay? Is everything okay? The yeah. power go out? What's going on? Well, a Sam Raimi superhero movie was a long time coming. Years before he started working on Darkman, Raimi had actually tried to procure the rights to both The Shadow and Batman without any luck. It's weird. I, I, I was just, I just thought it was interesting. I saw he, he had tried before this and in 2006. He tried again with uh, producer Michael Uslan uh, or Uslan or something. Anyway, they were trying yeah. to get the uh, uh, rights to the shadow again. He seems to really want to make the shadow for some reason, but it still That'd felt really through. fun. It would be really fun. Although I feel like he's kind of gotten a lot of that. Probably what he would have done in the shadow ended up happening in like the Spider-Man movies and whatever didn't happen in Spider-Man. He probably got it out of his system with the uh, Dr. Strange. I was say, this was 06, so I mean, this was after the first Spider-Man, I guess. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's really interesting, though, because I feel like he does do a lot of what you would expect him to do in the shadow in this movie, actually. Yeah. I mean, yeah. granted, you know, there there was a movie eventually made of the shadow by uh, Russell Mulcahy, the, the, the guy who did Highlander. Yeah. Uh, you guys have probably seen that. It's not particularly good. Oh. Uh, so I, I could definitely see it being... <laughs> Uh, rebooted or redone. I mean, it, it didn't do particularly well at the box office either, I don't think. The thoughts and opinions of Justin Bishop on The Shadow do not necessarily reflect the thoughts and opinions <laughs> of, other, of other podcasters. <laughs> it's not a great movie. I'm not saying it's not an entertaining movie, but it is not a good movie. I'm trying uh, to remember The Shadow. Is that Alec Baldwin? Yeah. yeah. Alec Baldwin. Okay. And then there's Billy Zane and The Phantom. The yes. Phantom is, yeah. And imagine if there had been a mashup of those. That would have been pretty oh. cool. <laughs> well, anyway, so he wasn't able to get the rights to the Shadow or Batman because they were already in the works with other people at that point. Uh, but not one to just give up. Raimi forged ahead with a hero of his own creation. So when he began to work through ideas for his character, he drew inspiration from not only the Shadow, but from stories like The Elephant Man, uh, The Phantom of the Opera, and of course, classic Universal monster movies from the 30s and 40s. Of these films, Raimi said, quote, they made me fear the hideous nature of a hero and at the same time drew me to him. I went back to that idea of a man who is noble and turns into a monster. When well, his book, The Unseen Force, which I've, met, I've mentioned this book several times on this podcast, it was once again a, a really good resource for this episode. Uh, but the author, John Kenneth Muir, when he's talking about the development of this film and the influences that Raimi could be drawing from. He also puts forth the idea that Raimi may have taken inspiration from a 1932 film called Dr. X, uh, a movie that Raimi would very likely have seen in his childhood when he spent a lot of his free time planted in front of the TV, devouring old movies. Nice. So Dr. I X. I haven't seen that. Have you guys seen that? I have not seen it. I, I kind of want to look it up now that I have read about it. Yeah. Uh, Cause I was not, I, I was not particularly, particularly familiar with it although i i hear the title dr x and it rings a bell but it's also kind of 
there's probably a million comics and characters named Dr. X. So who knows yeah. where that's coming from. Uh, but the, the movie was directed by a guy named Michael Curtis. Uh, Michael Curtis was one of the greatest directors of his time. Uh, this was an earlier film of his, but he would later go on to direct films as diverse as The Adventures of Robin Hood, Casablanca, Mildred Pierce, and White Christmas. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, awesome. doc- Yeah, yeah. I mean, of an incredible career. Uh, and Dr. X features a plot point where a scientist in this case in this movie it's the film's villain he's invented a synthetic flesh composition and has been creating masks to carry out his crimes Hmm. i saw an interview with sam raimi it was uh, like a 20 minute uh sit down with him and he when he was describing his ideas for it he said that he doesn't know where the genesis originally came from except that he was really obsessed with being able to change your face uh, cause he felt ugly inside. No, I don't know. He didn't say that part, but, uh, <laughs> he said he wanted to be able to change like his, a guy able to change his face. He actually goes through like a whole detailed process of it exactly lays it out, which is kind of interesting, but just how he would sit there and go, I like the idea of somebody being able to change their face. What would be the benefit of that? Okay. You could do this and this and this, I don't know. What about, uh, he's a superhero like the shadow or something. And then it's like, okay, and how would he work with that? Oh, he'd be able to act like other members of the gang and dismantle them from within. Okay. And then, so I thought about, all right, well, what would make a guy be able to change his face? What would he have to do for a living? And then he was just like, basically he just like explains like the exact layout of how he mapped out everything in there. He had seen, he had read something about liquid skin, and so he's like, oh, he'll be a researcher working on liquid skin. And then he'll, you know, what's his life like? He'll probably have a girlfriend. And this is, you know, and it's just, uh, anyway, that's his explanation for how everything went. Uh, he well, said he, he got into the idea of, I just wanted to use this here because it's so Sam Raimi. Uh, he just wanted to make it like a comic book, as dynamic and smashing as possible. <laughs> well, I mean, even even John Kenneth Muir in his book, he doesn't say he doesn't say that like this is definitely where Raimi got this idea. He's just like, well, there's this other movie that's got a pretty similar plot that might have been one of the many inspirations that Raimi is drawing from in this. I mean, I also thought of the House of Wax, uh, the 50s House oh, of yeah. Wax is kind of what came to mind for me. So who knows? But it could have been all these things. And some of them could have been unconscious. You know, it could have been. Uh, a subconscious kind of thing that you know these these ideas are just batting around somewhere in the back of his mind oh yeah he says he doesn't he, even know where they're coming from yeah he says he 100 doesn't know why he got obsessed with the idea of somebody changing their face but so it could have been from any one of those things yeah. uh and then he wanted to tell a story about it well Raimi originally fleshed out all of his ideas in a 30-page short story Oops. called the dark man uh before developing it into a 40-page treatment And at this point, according to Raimi, it became the story of a man who had lost his face and had to take on other faces, a man who battled criminals using this power. So by the time he gets to the treatment, that that concept that you're talking about, Gary, is fully kind of formed in his mind, the concept of a guy who can change his face. In 1987, Raimi submitted this treatment to Universal Pictures, and they saw a lot of potential in the story, and they actually gave him that gave the green light to the film with a budget in the range of eight to $12 million. Now I say in the range because they're not committing to a number yet because they don't have a full script yet. So they're, they're like, all right, we're going to, we'll green light this. It's going to be somewhere within this range, get to work on the script and then we'll give you a solid number. Uh, then they also suggested that he hire a, another screenwriter to help him flesh out the story. 
And Raimi, the screenwriter that Raimi chose was uh, his brother, Ivan, uh, Ivan Raimi. And yet another Raimi brother. I think that's the third one we've talked about on this show so far, right? There's yeah. a- Ivan, there's Ted, there's Sam. Is there another one? There's one more? It feels like there's Raimi? another one, but I don't there was know. The one, there was the one that passed away. Yeah, when he was a, when he was a kid. That's right. Yeah. So. Anyway, um, Ivan Ramey was a doctor, a medical doctor. So he actually, Ramey brought him on uh, not only because he wanted to collaborate with his brother, but because he wanted to make sure that the film's medical science was at least somewhat believable. I mean, it is still very far-fetched, but they wanted it to at least have the illusion of of being believable. Uh, He also collaborated with a young screenwriter named Chuck Farrar, an ex-Navy SEAL who had gotten noticed with his first produced screenplay, which was, uh, appropriately enough, Louis Teague's movie, Navy Steels, starring uh, Charlie Sheen and Michael Bean. Farrar only contributed one draft of Dark Man, although he would work with Raimi a little bit later down the line. He was the screenwriter for John Woo's Hard Target, which Raimi actually produced. I don't. You guys love Hard Target as much as I do. I do. I do love Hard Target. <laughs> I don't even think I knew that that Raimi produced it. Yeah. Well, let's yes. not forget John Woo was involved with another film where people changed their face. Oh yeah, I was watching it <laughs> earlier today on VHS. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it uh I want to do a John Woo series at some point cuz I don't know a ton about his career, but uh I like the idea that Sam Raimi is at least partially responsible for John Woo making American movies and coming, you know, to at least his American debut, which is what Hard Target was. But Chuck Farrar would uh later contribute to screenplays for films such as Barbed Wire you know, the Pamela Anderson masterpiece. Oh, yes. Uh, the the Jackal, the remake of The Jackal, and John Bruno's Virus. You know, the classics. <laughs> this is also the third episode that we've mentioned vi- Virus on, because that came up way back in our James Cameron series, remember? It is uh, because John Bruno yeah, was true. His, John oh, Bruno man. was one of his special effects guys. He helped yeah. him out with, like, the underwater stuff on the abyss. and Yeah, so for There's some another... reason, the movie Virus just keeps coming up on this show. Hopefully it's in roulette, or at least it should be a bonus episode. I the guys say, finally the one where the guys finally see virus <laughs> i think i think it's kind of like the rule of beetlejuice like if you say it if we mention it and again in another episode it appears behind yeah. us in a, in a mirror or something yeah i hope it's just jamie lee curtis behind me in a mirror. <laughs> yeah <laughs> so after a draft from farrar and several additional drafts that sam worked on with his brother ivan Ramey and his producer, Rob Tapert, started toiling away on additional drafts of the script. And in doing so, they kind of started to realize that they may have a potential superhero franchise on their hands. Tapert would later tell Cinefantastic Magazine, and this was in an interview he was doing when they, I think it was an onset interview for one of the Darkman sequels. He said, quote, Sam and I really wanted to see Darkman live on as a franchisable character and as an American superhero. In 50 years, Darkman should be on the damn tour at Universal with Frankenstein. Bold ambitions. Yeah, sure is. (laughs) But at the same time, like I was, you know, I recently fell down a rabbit hole of looking into the Universal monsters. Sorry, Todd, are you okay? Yeah, yeah, no, I'm fine. I, you know, I pulled, I pulled a little something here, but I'm good. I'm good, man. Now, I, you know, I, I was looking at the stuff, and it's there's a bunch of what are considered the Universal monsters. I think a lot of people think that there are five, maybe six Universal monsters. There's actually a bunch that are considered the classic Universal monsters. But in looking at some of the details about the production and distribution, I think 
if those are the go- if that's the golden age, like this is a little bit of comic uh, comic jargon. If that's the golden age of Universal monsters, I think there needs to be either a modern age or at least a silver silver and bronze age uh, where Darkman is definitely considered a Universal monster. And I have three others. Okay. Based on my research, so tell I don't me. Know if you, I want to know. I I, you do want to know. I want to know it. Okay. <laughs> okay Were you going to so, withhold that information? Just tease us with yeah, it. Yeah, I was going to tease you with it because initially. With it. So okay, pulling back the curtain a little bit on what we do is uh, generally, uh, you know, we do a bonus episode after we record. This is this was going to be my bonus episode, but then Justin was like, "Oh, we should do the the Dark Man sequels for the bonus," and I was like. Yeah, we can't not discuss the sequels. So, <laughs> so my my initial idea for what was going to be the bonus episode for this podcast of you know covering Darkman was my pitch to include King Kong, Michael Myers, Candyman, and Darkman in a new a but new batch of Universal monsters. They're because- not. All, those are not all Universal. But if you look at the classic <laughs> Universal monsters, not all of them were initially or from beginning to end of their existence conceived or distributed by Universal. So they, so they so they flew under they they did fly under the Universal flag at some point. And but all, I mean all the characters I just mentioned did the same thing. I know the like I said, I, like is- I said, I I mean if if you want to consider the silent Phantom of the Opera as part of the Universal Classic Monsters, which apparently nobody does, but you could because it was conceived and distributed by Universal and Phantom of the Opera is considered later. But anyway, I'm starting uh, to regret asking. See, I, that's why I said this could be the bonus episode. I mean, here's the deal. When you talk about the the collective, like the name Universal Monsters, it's Dracula, Frankenstein, Creature from the Black Lagoon, The Mummy, and The Wolfman. You could also throw Phantom of the Opera in there uh, because there Black was... Black Lagoon and The Invisible Man. Those are kind of the staples. Yeah, I said this. Did you Did, did you I... say Invisible Man? Oh, no. I said Creature from the Black Lagoon. I didn't say Invisible Man, but yeah, I would okay. I would include him as well. Yeah. But those were all ones that... The, the, fir- the first movie in each of those franchises was released by... Universal. Not necessarily. Mm, okay, well, we'll talk, necessarily. About- wow. <laughs> we'll talk about this when we do a Universal uh, Monsters. So I said this could be and, the and, bonus, man. And it, I mean, and when I when I say that, I mean, obviously, I know that like Thomas Edison made his own Frankenstein, but that's not the Universal Monsters version of Frankenstein. The Boris Karloff, Thomas Edison, yeah, yep. like the light bulb guy, yeah, <laughs> yeah. He did a he did a silent uh, a silent Frankenstein film. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, this is a tangent we don't need to go on. Right, right, right. (laughs) But that's something we will cover down the line when we do a Universal Monsters series. But I I would have a hard time believing that the versions of those characters that we all know and love did not originate with uh, with Universal because they did. Dracula and Frankenstein originated in books. I mean, uh, they're adaptations. Yeah, not not necessarily conceived by Universal. Did you guys, did you guys um, ever see, um, what the fuck was it? Dark Man? Oh, yeah. (laughs) So, because Todd's arguing semantics over here about what is and isn't a universal monster. And, uh, no, 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 no. 
what's a classic universal and what I think should be considered a new batch of universal monsters. There's nobody on the man. There's nobody on the face of this planet besides you, Todd, that would consider Michael Myers a fucking universal monster. Okay. (laughs) Right. Anyway, let's talk about Darkman. So they're working on this script. (laughs) I'm going to send Liam Neeson to both your houses. (laughs) Justin has a particular set of skills and I'd like to see them go head to head. (laughs) oh <laughs> uh, man uh where were we okay so we're we're, we're writing the script anyway yes they decide that uh they, they realize that dark man does have the potential to be like a franchise a a superhero but in order to get the script and the character to that level they had to start refining some stuff they had to make sure everything was coming together on the page in a way that would lend itself to future to future successes and that meant even more rewrites So to facilitate this, two writers named Daniel and Joshua Golden were brought in based on the strength of a screenplay that they had written for Universal called Welcome to Buzzsaw. According yeah, to that ever, I, I didn't see anything on that. Did that ever get off the ground or not that I'm aware of, at least not okay. under that title. If you look under them on IMDb, I mean, you'll see a, a few credits, but that's not one of them. So if it did, it was under a different name. But sometimes it's a, it's, a pre- it's a pretty cool title. <laughs> it's a pretty cool. It's a pretty cool title, and it, it's weird. Like sometimes writers will get noticed for scripts that they write, and then then the scripts never get made. It's just like the, yeah. they get stuck in development hell or whatever. It's really odd. Well, according to Daniel Golden, when he and his brother were brought in on to Dark Man, uh, the film was a or the project at this point was a big, interesting heap of documents. That's how they described it. Uh, (laughs) Daniel Golden went on to explain uh, there was a treatment that Sam had written and then a draft that Chuck Farrar had wrote. And we read another draft that was a combination of many drafts that that had Sam and Ivan's name on it. There were lots of little story documents. There was just material everywhere, drafts that seemed to go in many directions. So what it sounds like is that Sam and Ivan and Chuck, who wrote the one script, they were they had all these ideas, but they needed to put them together. They needed to like refine it and just kind of like 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 you're making a sculpture, just like going away at it and trying to get rid of all the fluff, you know, that you don't need. And that's kind of what they were brought in to do to kind of like just chip away at this thing and turn it into something that could be produced into a movie. Uh, He actually explained that their mission was to turn this interesting mix of ideas into a coherent emotional drama, Uh, but they only had about a month to work on it. That's all the Goldens were given. Uh, Mm -hmm. Universal brought them in. Universal had, had, you know, them brought them in because of this other script that they'd written, but Universal's like, all right, we want you to work on this. These guys need a little bit of help bringing this thing in, uh, but you've got one month to do it. So, and the reason that they only had a month is because Universal already had another project that they wanted them to work on a month later. And oddly enough, that project was Problem Child. Just similar plot. Yeah. <laughs> When's the last time you it's, guys saw Problem Child? It's, it's somebody's favorite movie. You know hey, it's somebody's it's favorite that little, movie. That little ginger kid who stars in it, it's his favorite movie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I remember they played Bad to the Bone. I knew that song because of Terminator 2 and Problem Child. <laughs> yeah, I remember, I remember John Ritter. I remember the grandpa who owned the toy store was an asshole. And that's all I really remember about it. <laughs> all i remember anyway so after the goldens polished up this screenplay contributing new ideas of dialogue new characters new bits of action uh they they worked a lot on the relationship between the the two leads uh the uh the peyton and julie they worked on kind of how that relationship would work in the movie a little bit better than what had been 
written before. But even after all this, the studio still wasn't totally satisfied, which led to the Raimi brothers writing several additional drafts of the script, all building upon what had come before. Now, this isn't entirely unusual. This happens with most movies, honestly. It happens with most movies. There's, there's multiple writers involved. There's multiple drafts. And at this point, after 12 drafts of this script, they finally had a shooting script that the studio was happy with. And Universal assigned the film a budget of $11 million that eventually got raised to $14 million, which is not a huge budget, even by the standards of the late 80s. But it is astronomically higher than any budget that Raimi had worked with in the past. What was Evil Dead 2? Like three and a half, four million? Right, I think so. Something yeah, like something that. So, lines, yeah. Um, so this is trip triple that. <laughs> so, jeez, yeah, pretty insane. And and yeah, it's always weird. I always like picture when I see who wrote a movie script. I'm like, oh my god, these guys like they must. I, I wish I had the ability to sit down and just write a script, just like all write out just immediately. Like I think I picture in my head like they just it all comes out at once. Like it's yeah. just there. This is a yeah. half a day, and I wrote this thing, and not even if. Even if there's just a single screenwriter, you know, on it, those screenwriters are often working on this for months or years at a time. And then yeah. sometimes you've got uncredited ghostwriters, uh, you know, script doctors uh, coming right. in and you don't even see their name on the screen, but, but you'll see their band. contributions. <laughs> the script doctors. <laughs> One, two, screenplays kneel before you. That is such a <laughs> stupid joke. Why did I do that? I don't know, but it got me. <laughs> <laughs> um Earlier, you mentioned John Ritter, and I, and I, for some reason, the first thing that came to my mind when you said his name was, I remember watching MTV back in the day, and there was a whole thing about how on FX or something, uh, it was on like, you know, the news, MTV news, and uh, they were saying they, they, uh, that John Ritter had, uh, they were replaying Three's Company. That's the show he was in, right? Yeah. yeah. So, and uh there was a scene they had found where like he wore really short shorts and he jumps on the bed and you can see his ball. <laughs> just one. <laughs> just one ball. S singular ball. A testicle. Wow. And, <laughs> and I remember them talking about that. And they had John Ritter on there, like an interview because <laughs> they had, had to go by and they're like, wow, it took this long to find this, you know, and FX has had to go in and like remove that scene. And they're like, <laughs> did you have any, any thoughts on that? And he said, well, Sometimes you feel like a nut. Sometimes you don't. <laughs> oh, this is wow. where this Slow is where you Tuesday over at MTV. <laughs> <laughs> this is where you insert the sound clip of that one kid talking to the other kid on Billy Madison. He's, Did you see that guy's balls? Yeah, they were weird looking. <laughs> weird looking. <laughs> oh man, you know Adam Sandler's across town as we're recording this. You know. Really? We could we could be there instead of doing what we're doing right now. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, Why would once... you do that? I could sit over here and just be like, <laughs> maybe I'll just do the rest of the episode. <laughs> just do the rest of the episode of Adam Sandler. <laughs> what are you looking at, Sean? <laughs> Oh, uh, so we have, gone, we have gone off the rails quickly. Yeah, we have <laughs> a bunch of times. We have. I, I had. I had hopes that this would be one of the shorter episodes, but we have. <laughs> so did it. Uh, so did my wife. Yeah, but no, no. His name's Robert G. Durant. I told you when I make the pickup. Ah! Again! No! I told you everything. I know, Rick. I know you did. <laughs> But let's pretend you didn't. Ah! <laughs>
Anyway, well, where are we? Pre-production. So we we've got a uh, we've got a budget. Once pre-production began, it was immediately apparent that this was going to be a film that required a wide variety of special effects. Everything from miniatures to matte paintings to optical effects, all of these things were going to be needed to pull off Raimi's vision. And the man responsible for the majority of these effects was William Mesa, the film's visual effects supervisor. Raimi originally got in contact with Mesa after completing Evil Dead 2. At the time, Mesa was actually working with Evil Dead 2's producer, Dino De Laurentiis, on an early version of Total Recall back when Australian director Bruce Beresford was attached to the project. If you want more on that story, uh, go back and check out our Total Recall episode when we did our uh, Paul Verhoeven series a few months ago. Raimi and Tapert wanted Mesa and his company, his company's called IntroVision, uh, he, they wanted them involved in Darkman, so they toured the company's facilities. And at the time, Introvision was like the second or third largest visual effects company in the world. This is behind, you know, like Lucasfilm. They had three large stages, a complete model and machine shop. They're kind of a big deal. And this was, of course, this is before digital imagery was used regularly. James Cameron and San Winston's digital, digital domain was still a few years away. I think that was like 93, 94 when they founded that, if I remember right. Uh, however, IntraVision had a process that they created and that only they used. They had patented this process called a dual process. That's what they describe it as. And this allowed you to put people into picture imagery and project a picture on two screens at the same time. So here's how Mesa kind of describes the process. See if this makes sense. He says, quote, it's one projector that projects onto two screens simultaneously and a matting system that allows you to mat out different portions of the images. So an actor, when he's out on the stage, looks like he's behind objects in the picture. Uh, he's set back rather than just in front of the picture, which at the time was the technology of blue screen or projection photography. So you think about projection photography, whether it be you know, rear projection or front projection, and you're basically, the actor is kind of separated from the image because it can only be behind him. This is a technology where they can actually project stuff in front of the actor, and they use this matting system to kind of block it out, if that makes sense really interesting and not something that you see done very often. So Raimi sees this technology and he got inspired. He's like, we can do something that I've never been able to do before that hardly anyone's been able to do before because this is kind of new technology. And this process was, it was used most notably in the rooftop sequence at the, uh, at the end of the film. The budget here is weird. Like Sam Raimi talks about, you know, you, you mentioned that the budget gets raised throughout. It's just like, they're doing all this stuff. And even the studio starts to know, like it's really special. So they start to give them a little bit more leeway. I guess what I was thinking of here is that Sam talks about it. And one of the biggest differences with having a budget like they do here is that like all these things that they're getting to do, you get to bring in professionals and they're not used to that. And, uh, <laughs> that, you know, he was like, he was, it was me and Rob and Bruce doing everything, you yeah. know? And so uh, this is a, which he says is like a trade-off, you know, you get cool concepts like the stuff you're talking about that they would never have done um, or thought of. But also you can't do um, all of the insane things that you would normally do. Yeah, you can't just beat the shit out of your main actor and call it a day like they did on Evil Dead 2. Right. <laughs> Raimi's budget afforded him the opportunity to work with new cutting-edge technology like the one we're talking about here, but it also allowed him a whole new world of actors, people that he would never have been able to afford before this movie. 
Of course, Raimi would have liked to have had Bruce Campbell in the film's title role. That was the original plan, but that wasn't going to be possible on a film of this scale. There was no way that Universal was going to sign off on Bruce Campbell because Bruce Campbell's not, I don't know, he's not well-known enough, I guess, at this point. Yeah, not at that point. So they needed a more recognizable lead. Gary Oldman and Bill Paxton were both considered for the film for a while. I think Bill Paxton would have been a terrible choice for this. As much as I love Bill Paxton, I just can't see him doing this role. Uh, Gary Oldman could have been kind of cool. I think Gary Oldman could have pulled this off. He got to do kind of the like uh, the fucked up face in Hannibal, though, right? Yeah. Way more fucked up than this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Way dark. I forgot about that. That like Mitch McConnell mask that he wears. (laughs) Mitch McConnell mask. Oh, my God. Uh, (laughs) The the point is Gary Oldman can do anything. I don't think yeah. there's any role that Gary Oldman, even a little person, Gary Oldman. Yeah, can yeah he's, it done it. <laughs> he's done it. He's done it. So, well, when neither one of those worked out, the role ended up going to Liam Neeson. Yeah, supposedly uh, Bill Paxson was friends with Liam Neeson and told him about this audition. And so when Neeson got this role, Paxton was so pissed off at him, he did not speak to him for months. <laughs> he cock-blocked him on the role. <laughs> That's rude. <laughs> well, uh, Neeson, of course, uh, he would shoot to stardom with Schindler's List three years after this. But at the time that he was cast in the role of Dr. Peyton Westlake, he was a promising up-and-comer. He had started his career in his native Ireland, where he had acted in plays in his teens, and then later joined the Lyrics Players Theater in Belfast. His first film role was in the 1978 film adaptation of the allegorical Christian novel Pilgrim's Progress. Now, Todd, you went to Bob Jones, not Bob Jones University, you went to the Academy. So Uh, I know know you had to read Pilgrim's Progress, right? Kindergarten through eighth grade, a nine-year sentence for a crime I'm not sure I committed. (laughs) (laughs) If I never have to read uh pilgrim's progress again oh yeah the, i definitely oh. i definitely read it when i because i i went to a christian school as well up through the fifth fourth grade no seventh grade up through seventh grade Ooh. so two different schools but yeah so we definitely had to read pilgrim's progress I, and i'm pretty sure i even watched the movie at some point although obviously i, I had no idea who liam neeson was at the time uh, but in the film, he played the role of the evangelist, and he also appeared as the crucified Jesus Christ. Now, Gary, don't get all hot and bothered at the thought of that. <laughs> we left that joke in, folks. I, I, I petitioned for it to come out. but uh, No, nope. <laughs> it, it stayed. It stayed. I made an executive decision. <laughs> I was uh, just trying to show a little respect for our Lord and Savior, but nope. <laughs> All right. Uh, in 1980... Liam Neeson got a big break when director John Borman saw him on stage as Lenny in Of Mice and Men and cast Neeson in the role of Guywin in Excalibur. After that, he continued to get higher and higher profile roles, most notably starring alongside Mel Gibson and Anthony Hopkins in The Bounty and with Robert De Niro and Jeremy Irons in The Mission. Uh, he got critical acclaim for his role in Suspect, in, uh, which he starred in with Cher and Dennis Quaid. And in 1988, he starred with Clint Eastwood in the fifth Dirty Harry film, The Deadpool. Also it's starring the- Ryan Reynolds. <laughs> but you're-, <laughs> you're probably thinking, whose balls did I have to bundle to get my very own movie? Well, I can't tell you his name, but it rhymes with Pulverine. <laughs> and let me tell you, Got a nice pair of smooth criminals down under. You know, I like that you did that impersonation, but I don't understand that joke. 
Yeah, I'm not sure I do either. I think Gary actually thinks that we're talking about. I mean, I think Todd actually thinks we're talking about Deadpool, the comic book character. No, no, I'm I'm I'm, I'm well aware, but I was just like, yeah, I can't I can't not do a line from Deadpool as as uh, Clint Eastwood. So you know who uh, else is in the Deadpool is uh, Jim Carrey. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. Well, anyway, um. Liam Neeson's film role just prior to Dark Man is 1989's Next of Kin, co-starring Patrick Swayze, where he plays like a, I think he plays Patrick Swayze's brother. He's on, he's a, he's like getting revenge on some, I don't know, I don't know. Getting revenge on people is kind of a thing for Liam Neeson, it seems like. As I was like yeah. researching this, I was like, oh, like it, this didn't start with Taken. He's been doing this his whole career. He's like, good at like, it. He's good at it. Uh, and I guess for Todd's sake, we should also note that he appeared in the 1988 film the good mother directed by none other than leonard nimoy yes you've never seen that movie you're right <laughs> <laughs> at least uh, he's excited <laughs> during filming neeson had to wear a 10-piece prosthetic makeup sometimes for 18 hours at a time this makeup took like three four hours to put on every day uh, and the makeup effects were designed by Tony Gardner, who he's going to work with Raimi again on on his next film that we'll talk about in our next episode. If Gardner's name sounds familiar to Cinema Shock listeners, it's because we discussed him in our episode on Return of the Living Dead. He was brought in to create the uh, the reanimated half corpse that Don Kalfa has to interrogate. You know that one of the most memorable scenes in the whole film. They basically brought Tony Gardner in just to make that. That's a good looking scene. Yeah. It is a good scene. So for the role of Darkman's love interest, Julie Hastings, Julia Roberts and Demi Moore were considered. And, and I found a fun little little tidbit about, about this. So this is before Julia Roberts was famous. This is before Pretty Woman made her one of the most famous women in the world. Apparently, her and Liam Neeson had dated not too long before the casting process for this film. Uh, she came in. She did an audition with... She, like opposite Liam Neeson. They did a scene together because he'd already been cast. And apparently she just crushed it. She did great. There was very emotional. They, uh, according to uh, the casting director, Nancy Nayor, both of the actors had tears in their eyes. Uh, it was like very, very, you know, intimate is how she described it. Wow. Well, right after the audition, Julia Roberts agent called and said that it might be best if she were taken out of consideration for the role. Uh, and Julie Namor, or I'm sorry, uh, Nancy Nayor kind of speculates that she may have felt that it would be too awkward for the two of them to work together after they had, they had like just broken up, but otherwise this could have been Julia Roberts, like first big starring role. That might've been cool. <laughs> it might've been, but ultimately it went to Raimi's old roommate, Francis McDormand, who had just received an Academy Award nomination for her role in Mississippi Burning. So they they did, they they got a pretty good substitute in there. Uh, Mississippi and I, and Burning, I, I, by the way, is, we've talked about Alan Parker here on the show before. Yeah. Uh, you know, he did Pink Floyd's The Wall, Angel Heart. Uh, I think we talked about him a lot when, uh, in your, actually your, your little bonus episode on David Warner, because yeah. they work together a lot. I hope uh, I hope Julie Roberts and Demi Moore are okay having not gotten this role. I think they'll be all right. Yeah, yeah. I just <laughs> I worry about them. I worry about them. Yeah, uh, Francis McDormand actually. I mean, in the interviews on the thing, it seems like they were still doing the living together thing with the Coens and stuff. She t she talks a little bit about uh, how Sam Raimi was working with them on Blood Simple and or, like helped them get their first thing in with Blood Simple mm -hmm. and all that. At this time, she was working. 
still even with acting jobs, apparently, as a, uh, she said, as a word processor for an organization that answered fan mail for ACDC. <laughs> was, wow. ACDC was getting so much fan mail in the late 80s that they had to hire a company to respond to it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I just thought that was wild. She said that she thinks she got this role then because Sam wanted somebody he could trust and that uh, he'd also been getting some kickback on how females were portrayed in his movies. Um, yeah, but not not uncalled for, I would say. Yeah. And uh, he said uh, she he thought she also needed to be able to pay her rent. Uh, so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> was- well, yeah, especially since they were roommates. He wanted her kicking in her her portion of the rent. One thing that's they really- butted heads on on set a little bit though, because she came from like a stage background, and which Ramy had never worked in stage, so he had a very he had a directing process that kind of clashed with her style of directing, and she also kind of like didn't like the idea of Julie turning into a uh, like a damsel in distress. Although in later interviews. We'll say another source I used on this, and it's on the Hollywood Reporter. They did a 30th anniversary oral history of dark man and in that interview francis mcdormand says like that she was that she was wrong basically that she should have played the character as written because that's what the that, that's what the role that that's what the film needed basically not yeah. that I think her i mean her, i think her performance is very good in this i don't think it hurt the film but it did ca- cause some tension between her and and sam yeah they definitely clashed uh they didn't I guess I uh, think they knew each other well enough or as well as they thought they did. But yeah. the, um, you know, the thing about it is that I was going to bring up is that it is kind of interesting. Liam and her both have this like serious stage background mm-hmm. and uh, she has like a master's in theater or something. And like, uh, so she had not planned on being in a movie like this, but part of the deal was, you know, that kickback I mentioned, she, she says, you know, Sam knew that she would, bring something to the, to the different to the role. And, and he knew that he says it in some of the stuff too, that, you know, she would take lines that she's like, this is false. This would not work. And she would, you know, he would work with her to like uh, redo some of her lines or some of the ways that she acted. She's a feminist. He knew that. And uh, so he advocated for her to be there and he wanted that out of her. But then she describes that, like uh, going back to what you're saying is, um, she said that, that basically everything about him was he he was like he envisioned the world in a comic strip form. So he had a big problem not understanding, in her words, why he uh, an actor can't just fall over, get run over by a truck and go flat and then pop back up into three dimensional form. And uh, so she said she was often trying to say, like, Sam, I am a human being. I cannot do everything exactly like you want it done. Like it's not going to work. Yeah. And, uh, but I mean, that's also the type of movies that he's making at this point in his career. <laughs> you know? Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. But uh, it was just interesting to me to see like somebody, I think this, I, I don't know, uh, you know, since he's been working with his crew and not like, you know, bigger budget actors, I suppose. I, I don't know. It, it doesn't seem like he's had to deal with that kind of pushback before. And right. uh and and it, it's interesting to me because I wonder like if if that's part of what makes this movie work as well as it uh, does because you had people like Francis McDormand and Liam Neeson in the in the lead roles because you know Liam yeah. Neeson's got to be more than he's he's sizable so he's a big monster but also he's got to be very emotional and uh, and warm and believable. 
Yeah, I absolutely think so. I think Neeson and McDormand, they were both relatively unknown at this point, but uh, or at least they weren't household names. I mean, like we said, Neeson had done some significant work before this, no starring roles, all all, uh, all supporting roles, and McDormand had gotten an Oscar nomination, but they weren't like movie stars. Um, and in retrospect, you they, they both seem absurdly overqualified for this kind of movie. I mean, yeah. both of them would <laughs> be nominated for Oscars for their performances in other films later on. I mean, McDormand has won three uh, Oscars for Best Actress. She's been nominated like seven times, and she's won three Best Actress Oscars. That's uh, insane. Yeah. But I, I think their I- presence in the film is part of what helps to elevate it. Like you're saying, I, I think they both bring a gravitas to the film that quite frankly, isn't there on the page. It's not in the script, uh, but because they're both so good, they're able to take these characters who are kind of care, not caricatures, but they're, they're kind of, they're barely written. They're not like well-written characters. They're not very deep characters, you know, but they're able to take them because and, and through their performance, create uh, sympathy, make them turn them into sympathetic characters uh, that I think makes their story even more tragic, which well, is a big part of Darkman's origin. And I think, you know, they came to this with different with a different set of tools. You know, it's the difference between studying a, a, uh, Tchaikovsky a and skills. Shakespeare and and uh, and Meisner versus Larry Moe and Curly. Yeah, I don't know who some of those people are that you mentioned. <laughs> right. Who's uh-huh. Curly? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I only, yeah, Shemp is who we do with. Um, <laughs> Man, the- I was watching the Three Stooges yesterday, and that shit's funny. I, mean, <laughs> I, I see what Sam Raimi likes about them. Yeah. <laughs> they are good. Uh, um, back to the Francis McDormand real quick. The part I, I was trying to think of before I just remembered is that um, she talks about that, you know, when he cast her as a feminist and because of the way he had, he had received some kickback for treating female actors. She took it as like her responsibility to not be, she said, you know, at this time she was used to the idea that unfortunately, no matter what, as a girl, unless you're the hero of the film, you're going to end up handcuffed or tied up or something at some point. And she didn't want to just totally embrace the damsel in distress, distress right. part. Uh, she didn't do it as much as she should have. She says she felt an obligation to not come across as weak in the movie. And uh, like you said, they uh, push back. Uh, she says, uh, you know, even they had that and the thing where she's like, I'm not a cartoon. Uh, she said I, she does feel like she challenged him a little too far sometimes yeah. uh, than she should have. Um, in fact, on the Shout Factory DVD, a lot of what I'm getting from her is like out of an interview there. And she's only doing it because uh, she said that she didn't even realize Darkman had a legacy or like anything about it necessarily. Although she should have figured because she says, you know, like Sam's stuff usually does have like some kind of cult following. But she was working on another movie and the makeup artist on there was uh, Christian Tinsley. Uh, and she said that while he was doing her makeup, she mentioned, Hey, somebody reached out to me about an interview about dark man. Can you believe that? And then he was like, Holy shit. I love that movie. Like (laughs) that is, I saw that movie when I was 15 years old. And that's one of the reasons I got into makeup effects like that. He had seen it. He said him and his buddy had actually gone to a comic con and bid and bought bid on and bought the mask that the stunt man wears for dark man. 
um and nice. won it and he has he had the mask and and said that they spent hours studying that mask and wow. everything for him to learn to become the thing so she was like okay this is this is more important than i thought it was i guess no that's cool i think yeah. you said that was christian tinsley yeah yeah he was one of uh rick baker's dudes for a while i think uh, I wonder what movie it was. I don't. I don't know what movie. I don't know. Uh, anyway, we'll look that up later. Yeah. <laughs> we'll look it up later. Anyway, so uh, the role of the film's heavy went to Doctor Giggles himself, Larry Drake, who at the time was best known for his role in the, on the TV series L.A. Law, which he appeared in from 1987 to 1994. Um. So he, <laughs> that he he seems like just such a he seems like a fun guy he and and so i think he relished this role because he said yeah. he, he had always like uh, known he had like a blue collar body and talked like a school teacher so there was yeah many... he, he says a uh i look like a truck driver and talk like a school teacher is what he says yeah he <laughs> said he, he always knew though that like in acting he'd always be playing big and tough big and dumb or big and mean those would be like the <laughs> things he could do um he said one time he remembered being at a party and telling somebody he's like i think uh, based on my roles, I have a face for scaring 12-year-old boys. And the lady he was talking to was like, yes, you do. And he was like, that was, you're not supposed to agree with that, but okay, thank you. Um, but he said he just showed up at this thing, like his agent told him about it. He went to it and it was like reading. He said he wasn't even prepared. He was just like holding like the papers in his hand, which he's he's like, I was just totally wingy. I didn't even like have anything memorized or all of that stuff. He said, but the party thinks got, that got it for him was... um the revolving door scene like he had done something and then sam said uh let's where he's try playing this. against uh, himself his own yeah, character yeah yeah and so so sam asked him like let's do this so he's like looking at it and he said he didn't know what to do but he was like hey, fuck it let's just try it and so he just like jumped in and he started playing both guys jumping back and forth and he said it apparently that's what sam really liked was his willingness to just jump into it and just do it uh and then he felt like he did a good job portraying two different expressions and two different ways of handling it. Um, like Durant being angry and dark man being nervous and uh, all of that stuff. So I thought that was kind of cool. I do like the way that he plays the character though, because he, uh, and he talks about this in interviews too, where he's, he basically tries to make him very like cool and level headed all the time. Like even when he's doing evil things, like cutting a dude's fingers off, he never like plays it up. Like he's enjoying himself. He's just, it's just like business. Um, yeah. the only time that you see him getting like emotionally, uh, like frustrated or anything is when he's trying to shoot dark man with the, uh, the big, like 30 caliber explosive things, uh, on the helicopter at the end yeah. and it keeps missing. He gets like angry then, but otherwise he's like cool as a cucumber the whole time, which makes him scarier. I think. Yeah. yeah his whole thing <laughs> was, he was like, I, I don't want him to, um, he was like, he would be a, um, disengaged from life i think is how he described it and uh yeah. he didn't like the mustache twirling villain or anything yeah. um he just said that this would be a guy there's no intrinsic value he's just mean and just he's it, not even melodramatic in any way just efficient like he just yeah. was very cool and calm and collected about doing everything it's funny you mentioned the the finger cutting scene too he said that that was like one of the things that like the only thing in the script that concerned him when he was reading about it because it felt like what he read it like specifically violet uh and yeah. uh he said there was something about it that just seemed like wow he said he had never done it before that he was thinking about like what if something like 
disturbed teenager somewhere in like Wisconsin goes and gets a cigar cutter and starts to like cut somebody's finger off or something. I'm going to ha- handle that. And he said, which it didn't happen, <laughs> luckily. Uh, and he said he was actually kind of surprised, too, that I don't know if he wasn't familiar with Sam Raimi or not. But um, he says that, you know, it was kind of cool to see it later that that it was like stylized violence that uh, yeah. it's graphic, but it's still fun. And so mm-hmm. he likes the way that Sam Raimi handles that kind of stuff. Yeah. So for the other villains in the film, we have Colin Friels as Strack, uh, which is kind of the, I guess, technically kind of the main villain, even though, because really, really Larry Drake's character is a glorified henchman who just happens to have his own henchman. You know, right. even he's kind of, he, he's considered the bad guy of the film, but he's working for this, uh, the Strack guy. You also had Sam's brother, Ted Raimi as Rick. Uh, you had Nicholas Worth as Pauly. And Evil Dead 2's Danny Hicks is back as Skip. He's the one-legged henchman, which uh, he's really great in this movie as well. And there's also a a handful of really fun cameos in the film. If you're paying attention, you'll see uh, an American werewolf in London's Jenny Gutter as the burn ward uh, doctor. She's the lead uh, female character in an American werewolf in London. Uh, She's for some reason uncredited in this, even though her, her role is not really like cameo. Like, I mean, she's got a, she, she gives a lot of very important exposition (laughs) in in her scene. I don't know why she's uncredited. Maybe she was doing it as a favor to, to Sam or something. Uh, You also had Joel and Ethan Cohen. They appear as the driver and passenger in a very familiar looking Oldsmobile Delta 88. Uh, and uh, this is the weirdest one to me. Uh, you've got Neil McDonough. You guys know the the, char- the actor, character actor, Neil McDonough. Oh, yeah. Bill Lustig, director of Maniac, Maniac Cop. Scott Spiegel, uh, who and he shows up in all the Raimi's movies. So that one's not surprising. And then Stuart Kornfeld, who we talked about back in our David Cronenberg series, the uh, producer, uh, Stuart Kornfeld, he produced The Fly. They all cameo as dock workers in the film, which is just super strange to me. Uh, and of course, Bruce Campbell shows up at the very end as Westlake's final disguise. So I guess Bruce Campbell did actually get to play Darkman, uh, but he's credited in the film as the final shimp. I like that. Yeah, I, uh, no, it's, it's always pretty good. That's a favorite moment of mine is when he turns around and looks to camera and all that yeah. stuff. I, I really like that. <laughs> it's it's almost like a little Easter egg just for Sam Raimi fans. Yeah, <laughs> it really is. I think so. Like uh, in some of the reviews, I, I was you know going through stuff for uh, nap needing people, and uh, but somebody mentioned like seeing Bruce Campbell, and they were like. They had not ever, they didn't know anything about the movie and they were watching it and they were like, who even directed this? This feels familiar, but they said like that Bruce Campbell is there at the end and they're like, Sam Raimi. It's totally Sam Raimi. Like they just <laughs> Danny Hicks tells like a fun story about Skip, you know, with the machine gun leg and like the guy breaks it off and yeah, you know, and he's like, he hops, he just stands there hopping around for a while, you know, and, or skip. I really like when the other henchman puts his arm out so that he can steady him. Like that's yeah. a normal thing for them. That's a good little touch. Yeah. yeah he said he, he grabs onto his arm, you know, or whatever. But he said afterwards, he had asked Sam, he was just like, Sam, this is, a, this feels like the dumbest thing in the world. <laughs> <laughs> it's real silly. And, and Sam Raby said like, no, 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 no. Trust me. It's going to get a great reaction by the audience. It's, it's perfect. And they said, that, uh, sure enough, it did. Like it's, it's really, gr- it's really great. And it makes sense in that opening scene because you know, it, they need that deception to get the upper hand. But later on, when he's the, when they're using it in a scene later on, they're still using the the gun, the leg gun. I'm like, you guys just could use a regular gun for this scene. Now, poor Danny Hicks and poor Skip over here just having to hop around on one foot. Right, <laughs> that was unnecessary. But I do, I really like the henchmen. They they are just 
one prosthetic away from being Dick Tracy villains. Yes. Every one I of could them. see it. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Like, they especially really like are. they've got unique looks. Like, I mean, yeah. besides the fact that, uh, you know, uh, Larry Drake looks unique as hell. Uh, yeah, there's he, that does, bald he, he looks one. like a Dick Tracy villain. <laughs> yeah. There's that bald one too. That looks like uh not, not a bald one, like Alec or uh, <laughs> <Holy>! Steven. <laughs> but the, the, the one we didn't mention too, uh, smiley. That's a uh, Dan bell. Um, mm-hmm. I, I just know him really well because I've seen Wayne's World like a million times, and he's plays <laughs> Neil in Wayne's World. Yeah, who's oh Neil? My God, he's he's one of the guys that's with him. He's like a, you know, he doesn't roadies. have a lot of lines or anything, oh, okay. but he's you know he's one of the guys that is always there that works on like I think he's like the camera operator or something. Oh, okay. and he had a really funny story too that just I I just like these little fun stories that involve interaction with Sam Raimi. Just that he said that. uh the first time when they bust up in the uh, factory at the end with the machine guns and they're just like blasting everything. And he said, mm-hmm. it was like this whole elaborate setup that they had, you know, once he starts shooting, like the bin opens and grain starts falling out, like this explosion goes off and this thing and this thing. And he said, and the guy hands him the gun is just like, Hey, I've got the safety on. Just be careful. You know, and just like, don't forget to turn it, you know, take the safety off when you go in and blah, blah, blah. And he said, of course I forgot to take the safety off. So they bust in the door and he just starts going, but nothing's happening. And, uh, <laughs> but of course, all of the elaborate processes start happening. The bid opens, the grain falls out, the explosions start going off, everything oh, starts no. going. And they're just sitting there like bang, bang, bang. And he said, like <laughs> Sam like had this look on his face. He said he could tell he was very frustrated, but he very like calmly got up and walked over to him and was just like, Hey, um, don't do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Todd, I do have to ask you if you had any because you've had a little bit of luck on our uh, on our Sam Raimi series so far. A little been, bit. It's been slim. But it's been slim. Been, it's been, been slim, a... but there's been a couple here and there. But uh, as far as Darkman goes, because this is a big studio film, so we've got these actors who are you know much more experienced than maybe some of the actors in the previous films. Any yes. luck? Uh, Tracking with any of these guys? I think we double our number, at least double okay. our number so far uh, with uh, with Darkman. Right off the bat, we got Neil McDonough, uh, a.k.a. Dum Dum Duggan. Uh, he was in Star Trek First Contact in 1996 as Lieutenant Hawk. Uh, he gets wow. yeah, he gets uh, he gets assimilated while they're in their EVO suits and tries to like shoot cool. the guard and stuff. Yeah, I haven't seen that movie in a long time. So oh, it's such such a good one. It's a good uh, one. Then we got uh, Cliff Cliff. Fleming as uh, the police helicopter pilot, uh, and he did some helicopter piloting for uh, Star Trek for the voyage home. Uh, and of course, I was about uh, to ask, like, where the fuck is there a helicopter in Star yeah, Trek? Yeah, no. <laughs> voyage home makes sense. There you go. <laughs> uh, and also uh, JJ's first two, uh, 2009 and Into Darkness. He did uh, he did stuff on those. And then we've got uh, Craig Hosking as another helicopter pilot. He was also in Star Trek Into Darkness in 2013. And then we've got uh, Nathan Jung as Chinese warrior. Now, he was born November 29th, 1946, but he was in Star Trek TOS, the OG. Season 3, episode 22, The Savage Curtain. That's from 1969. He played Genghis Khan. He plays Genghis Khan? Yeah, he plays (laughs) Genghis Khan. That's the the one where uh, the Enterprise meets uh, Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
his first film was Blind Rage, uh, 1976. It's a martial arts movie. Blind um, Rage. Hold on. Blind Rage. They just covered this on Quentin Tarantino's podcast, which probably has a lot more listeners than our podcast uh, video <laughs> archives. But Blind Rage is about uh, it's about a bank heist by oh, five yeah? blind men. Oh, oh that's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bunch of blind dudes robbing a bank. Wow. Uh, but uh, the last thing uh, Nathan Jung worked on was uh, Nathan Jung versus Bruce Lee. It's a 2016 documentary short where he is the narrator. Uh, it actually won three awards uh, at the Asians on Film Festival. That was in 2016. Uh, he passed away just last year, April 24th at the age of 74. And then we got uh, Aaron Justig as Martin Katz. He was in uh, two episodes. He was in an episode of Star Trek Voyager, season one, episode seven, Ex Post Facto, that's in 1995, which was directed by LeVar Burton. And he, he was also in an episode of Star Trek Enterprise, season two, episode 12, The Catwalk, uh, which we covered on episode 33 of Computer Resume Podcast, available now wherever you get your podcast. And then we've got uh, Mr. Nicholas Worth as Polly. Uh, he was born September 4th, 1937, St. Louis, Missouri. He received a bachelor's of fine art from Carnegie Mellon. And uh, he actually served three years in the U.S. Army as a paratrooper. Uh, but his first film uh, was a small uncredited role, but was in For Pete's Sake in 1966. And then he was in Don't Answer the Phone in 1980 as Kirk Smith. And he, I got this quote here from uh, from Nicholas about it. And he said, some people at church said, how can you do this film being a Christian? And I said, we don't live in a Pollyanna society. God called upon me to act, and I have to present the world as it is. Uh, and of course, he's talking about his role in that film, which is a deranged, impotent, misogynistic Vietnam veteran porno photographer who brutally strangles young women. <laughs> uh, but he actually also won an award for that at the Stigis Catalonian International Film Festival. But he was also in a couple of episodes of Deep Space Nine, and a couple uh, those uh, two episodes were season one, episode fourteen, Progress, and season five, episode seventeen, A Simple Investigation. And then he was in a couple of episodes of Voyager, it was season five, episode twelve, The Bride of Chaotica, and season seven, episode ten, Shattered, which was his last TV appearance. And he died May 7th, 2007, at the age of 69 in Van Nuys, California. Then we've got uh, Jesse Lawrence Ferguson as Eddie Black, uh, born June 8th, 1942 in the Bronx. His first film was The Onion Field in 1979. And uh, he was in uh, Star Trek The Next Generation Season 1, Episode 3, Code of Honor, 1987. And then he was also in uh, John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness in 1987. Uh, he was also in The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension. That was in 1984. Boys in the Hood in 1991, directed by John Singleton. And uh, he passed away April 26, 2019, at the age of 76. Uh, and he is survived by his son, Jace. And then, of course, we have Mr. Larry Drake as Robert G. Durant. He was in Star Trek Voyager Season 7, Episode 5, Critical Care. That was in 2000. And that's everybody in Star Trek. That's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> that's a lot. That's, well, Larry Drake, is that character a uh, like an alien? Uh, you know, it's been a while since I've gone through Voyager, but I got, I mean, they're out there by themselves in the Delta Quadrant. So I got to assume that's a, I got to assume that's some sort of alien. 
Yeah, I just looked it up. He's definitely an alien of some oh, sort. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, he's he's got some weird stuff going on on his forehead. <laughs> classic. You know, nice. classic Star Trek. Make classic them an alien, Star put Trek. some weird shit on their forehead or their it's ears. It's either on their, on their forehead, on their ears, or on their nose. And yeah. there you go. You got an alien. <laughs> <laughs> well, with his biggest cast, biggest crew, and biggest budget yet, Raimi began principal photography on Darkman in Los Angeles, California, and filming on this took place almost entirely in real locations, including a local hospital uh, and in Chinatown, where they filmed several stunt chases and dangerous drops from tall buildings, which we will get to in a minute. Uh, but one of the most ambitious sets in the film was Darkman's lab, his lair, you know, oh, to create yeah. this set. The crew found an enormous warehouse in downtown L.A. that had been originally used as a refrigerated food warehouse. And with the help of production designer Randy Sir, the warehouse was converted into stages. Uh, it was an enormous set. I mean, this building is huge. Now, we're not talking like James Cameron, Titanic huge, but uh, a very, very big set. In fact, the furnaces that you see in there, those were built. Those were not part of the original warehouse. They were oh, built wow. by the crew and they were over two stories tall. Jeez. <laughs> yes, yeah, so this is this is this is big. Uh, so, you know, we we you know have talked about this a lot on Sam Raimi, but he often has very complex, very ambitious camera shots, very wild movements that you don't see from other filmmakers. So, to plan all of these on a set like this, Randy Sir actually built a scale miniature of the warehouse set, and then they built two scale miniatures of the camera cranes themselves. They've got the scale model of the set and the cameras, and that actually allowed them uh, and allowed Raimi to choreograph how these cameras would move in the real world throughout the set. Uh, and by doing that, this whole process, uh, it allowed them to know which parts of the set might need to be hinged or movable once the actual construction took place. So it, it's a it's really great planning on their part, and you really have to on a Sam Raimi movie uh, because he's doing some wild that's pretty, shit with that's this. Pretty, yeah, that's pretty smart, honestly. Yeah, because his camera, especially in the warehouse, but really in the whole movie, his camera is flying everywhere in this movie. Yeah. You know what's crazy about it, though, is like when you hear him talk about it some is, um, you know, if you're used to watching the Sam Raimi stuff we've already talked about is you got like the demon vision and, and all of that with the shaky cam and, and that sort of stuff that he was doing. He does talk about being very aware that this is more real world and real people. Uh, you kind of, mm -hmm. you kind of said that, but it's like a, he is very concerned with the camera work being different than uh, like an evil dead or sure. something like that. He said, it fits you know, the you, movie more. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he, cause it was the word uh, ethereal demon mm -hmm. stuff is what he called it. I think, um, you know, you get the vision of the demon. It's easier than the people explaining what's happening that you get like the, you could just show them instead of telling them. Um, but, you know, if you get too playful in this kind of movie, he says it can come across really gimmicky. So you've got to like yeah, show balance. Yeah. I mean, it's still pretty showy. <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> right. maybe not quite. I didn't say he succeeded. I'm just saying that's what he said. <laughs> Cause he does some weird shit in this movie. Uh, but to, so in order to pull off, these insane camera moves once they got to shooting in the real world with real cameras, Raimi needed a great cinematographer. Now Universal insisted that the film not look like Evil Dead, uh, so they didn't want Raimi to use any of his previous DPs. They wanted somebody new to come in. This is kind of like a typical studio move, like we're gonna, you know, this is your first big studio movie, 
we're going to have to exert our power over you just a little bit by saying you're not allowed to have your previous DPs. Uh, this is, it's, it's, it's something you see a lot with first-time filmmakers working for a studio, or first-time studio films, I should say. So Raimi goes out looking for a new uh, cinematographer. He asked Barry Sonnenfeld. He knew Sonnenfeld because of his connection to the Coen brothers. Uh, Sonnenfeld, who, of course, later becomes a director. He did you know, Men in Black, Wild Wild West, uh, and stuff like that. But he started his career The classics. A, yeah, you know, the classics. Classics. Uh, <laughs> he started his career as a director of photography. He was the DP on the Coen Brothers' Blood Simple, Raising Arizona, and Miller's Crossing. So Raimi approaches him. Uh, Sonnenfeld's not available for whatever reason. He's probably working on Miller's Crossing, actually, because it's around the same time. Uh, but Sonnenfeld recommended Bill Pope. Of course, we all know Bill Pope pretty well. We talked about him a lot during our series on the Wachowskis because he had been the cinematographer on Bound and on the first three Matrix films. Mm-hmm. But at this time, Pope was a music video cinematographer. He had, he had done a lot of music videos, but he had never shot a feature before. Uh, Darkman would actually end up being his first film. So another challenging piece of design that Randy Sir had to tackle was Westlake's skin-making machine. See, Raimi wanted this machine to be able to be shot in a way where we see it function through the entire skin-making process without cutting. This is a big ask. The result is a sort of hybrid of computer, photocopier, hologram, and skin mold. Uh, the skin mold was modeled on those uh, those pen molds that we used to all buy at the, the mall back in the 90s, you know, at like uh, Natural Wonders or wherever. And yeah. if you guys were like me, you probably like put your finger in it, doing a shooting a bird and then yeah. left it there. <laughs> I, I, try, I always tried to do it and then tried to open my eyes. And it was like, look, and there was, and mom was like, stop that. It's very difficult, but that's, I mean, if you watch this film and you see the the skin mold that they're using, it is 100% just a giant one of those things. Yeah. <laughs> but to combine all of these elements in a way where Raimi could shoot it without having to edit, Sir decided that he would go not the route of movie magic, but of just regular old magic, uh, which, uh, of course, we know is near and dear to Sam Raimi's heart. So I'm sure that he he loved that. Uh, and Sir actually went to the people who built David David Copperfield's magic axe and wait, explained. Wait, what? Yeah, David Copperfield, the guy who made the Statue of Liberty actually disappear in real life. It's real, Justin. <laughs> it's real. It's an illusion, Todd. It's an illusion. Damn it! David Copperfield is not an actual wizard, Todd. Uh... We just broke Todd's entire worldview. That is too bad. <laughs> so uh, uh, Randy Sir goes to these guys, and he kind of explains to them how he wanted the illusion to work. And then with the information he got from them, he was able to build the device and have it function the way that Raimi wanted. Now, I could not find any information on how it worked, and that might just be the the you know the magic illusion, you know, not giving away your secrets kind of thing. So I'm not really sure. You can't, you can't give it away. I, I just thought this was fun because um, David Copperfield has also been in my life recently. Um, again, like, like you, you've been hanging hang out, out or... with him regularly. Um, <laughs> no, we, we you have, have an awesome life, Gary. We, we get, get it. it. <laughs> no, no, I, I wasn't hanging out with David Copperfield, but we do have a character in the NWA called Magic Jake Dumas, and um, he he uh, is a he's like a disgruntled magician. <laughs> um and I love it. 
He's he's fun. He's he's a really. I think cool... all magicians are a little disgruntled. Let's be honest. <laughs> he does seem like like he's like a drunk, like pissed off. Like he smokes a <laughs> cigarette on his way to the ring, and like just and he's like just pissed off. But sometimes he wins his matches with deceptive tactics. Like he'll pull out of a uh, uh, like a string of handkerchiefs and choke somebody out and when the ref goes to look for it it's disappeared i love that i can't believe nobody's done that gimmick before now yeah or maybe guys, just not successfully but so so like i've been watching because like for some reason it randomly came up and uh me and this guy have like hung out uh he even has an assistant um if you if you follow me on Instagram, you might have seen her recently on the stories, uh, hanging out on Bourbon Street, and we got her a snake, and uh, and, and made it that like that was him, and she forgot the spell to turn him back or something. Because sometimes <laughs> the thing they find fun is like he can't get the trick right, but she's magical. Like somehow, uh. like she, because all she does, she's great. She just stands there and does the like presentation thing, like ta da, like no matter what's <laughs> happening, even if like. He's trying to do a trick and somebody beats the shit out of him. She's still like, Ta-da. she's Ta-da. still doing her job. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's it's great. so great. That. That's good. But anyway, I, I started looking for stuff for him one time. And I remembered like as a kid watching David Copperfield stuff. So I was mm-hmm. sending him things like, dude, you should totally do this. One of them was like a David Copperfield trick. Like, remember the things where you'd like look at the screen and he would be like, I'm going to show some cards on the screen and yeah. Yeah. pick a spot and go this many spaces to the right you know and then go this many back and blah blah you're not here you're not going here i was like you could totally do that to like pick your opponent or something have the audience <laughs> like do the like walk through the thing anyway oh, that's so great uh but so i've been sending him like david copperfield clips it was unnecessary <laughs> for this show but i just thought i'd share <laughs> thank you gary so <laughs> so they get this they get this contraption made uh thanks to the david copperfield's people uh and in the end you know, when they shot it they actually only had to cut at one point when the face is pushed out and you take out the new face that dark man's going to apply they had to cut that to put the new face inside of it because they couldn't just actually make it appear uh, otherwise the machine operated exactly as we see it in the film which allowed Raimi to shoot the entire process from multiple cameras and then he could kind of edit the scene as he saw fit what am i some kind of a circus freak? Is that it? Is that it? Some kind of a freak? Me, I should be wearing a funny little hat. Do you like it? Yeah? Yeah? Pay the dancing freak. Pay five bucks. This is the dancing freak. Only five bucks to see the dancing freak. Now, we mentioned some jumps from tall buildings earlier. Let's get back to to that because we always like to talk about the stunts and the stuntmen on this show. Yes. Uh, well, one of the most dangerous sequences to film in Darkman was the one where Durant, the film's villain, pushed Polly, that's his henchman who he thinks is stolen from him, but it was actually Darkman, you know, pushes mm-hmm. him out of a ninth story window. And this scene was filmed in a real hotel in downtown Los Angeles where a stuntman really went out of a ninth story window on a blind jump, meaning he's, you know, he kind of has to run through the window and can't see where he's going until after he's already in the air uh, and then landed on a bag some 90 feet below. And it's an incredible stunt to watch in the film, really. I mean, anytime I see somebody falling from a building like that in a movie and you, it's clear that it's a real person. They didn't like throw a dummy out of the window. It's I'm incredibly impressed because I know there's a bag at the bottom, but even then, you're falling nine stories out of a building. Yeah, you're even still with falling. A bag, you have to know exactly what you're doing. 
you know, and, and the man overseeing this and the film's other dangerous stunts was stunt choreographer Chris Doyle. Doyle has a long history as a stuntman and later stunt choreographer dating all the way back to the late 1970s. Uh, he'd been a stuntman on films like The Hills Have Eyes 2, uh, Trancers, which of course is a movie that I will bring up any chance that I get, and uh, A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2. He had his first gig as a stunt choreographer on a TV series called Riptide in 1985, and he would go on to work on films like Blind Fury, not to be confused with Blind Rage, the movie we talked about earlier. Blind right. Fury is the one with Rutger Hauer as the blind Vietnam vet who has a samurai sword. Really fun movie. Uh, uh, Dead Heat, <laughs> another really fun movie with Joe Piscopo as a fighting zombies, I think. Uh, yeah, it's 100% <laughs> is. Yeah. Uh, Joe versus the Volcano, Maniac Cop 2, and Kindergarten Cop. Nice. So this is legit. It's not like uh, when RoboCop uh, throws that one dude out of the window or shoots and him it out just the window. Is, and it's like really way too long. Yeah. yeah. His <laughs> <laughs> no, no, they really threw a guy. Oh, they didn't throw a guy. He, a guy jumped out of a window as Polly. So uh, <sighs> one of Doyle's biggest challenges on Darkman, though, was the big finale, which takes place on a helicopter flying over Los Angeles with Darkman hanging on by a long cable and hook. Another incredible incredible stunt in this movie because it's yeah. very clear that it's a real dude i mean i haven't seen a, this movie so, in forever and when i saw that stuff like i was like wow this is way more of a blockbuster than i remember yeah, it because we talked uh -huh. about that uh, about how big a deal that was on um on, on true lies remember we yeah. talked about how big a deal that was that they had someone just hanging from granted they had someone hanging from a helicopter and then they were scooping a woman out of a moving limo it's a little more elaborate than this but it's still a guy hanging from a helicopter uh a real helicopter real guy in a real city like they're in downtown los angeles like yeah. they couldn't they couldn't fake this not if they wanted it to look right so they they just really did it and the sequence took two and a half weekends to complete partially because they were only allowed to film on Saturdays and Sundays. They were only allowed to film on the weekends uh, just because of where it was, because it was literally like the downtown bustling business area of, of Los Angeles. Yeah. So they hooked the stunt double, a guy named Terry James, to the helicopter by two cables, uh, two cables because if one broke or something, then he would have another one and wouldn't fall to his death. And then the pilot could actually speak to James. He would say things like, you know, Hey, we're going to go up. Hey, we're, we're going to make a dive. We're going to give this another pass just to kind of give him a, a heads up on what was going on so that he could compensate however he needed to. But James could not communicate back to the pilot, which made things a little bit difficult for him. Yes. And this is an incredibly physically demanding stunt, not only because of the danger involved, but because once the camera, you know, in between takes, he's just kind of dangling there, which is dangerous on its own. But once the camera started rolling, James had to kind of flail his arms and legs to make it look believable, like he's struggling, you know. Uh, and then after the first weekend of shooting, it was pretty clear that this was too much. Like, it was just too physically demanding for one person to do over and over and over again. So they brought in a second stunt double, a guy named Chuck Borden. And the final product that we see in the film features both of these men in the dark man attire. So both of them are doubling So from shot to shot. Wow. One of the final sequences that was shot was the final confrontation between Darkman and Strack on the top of an unfinished construction site. And it, it seems like a simple scene on paper. You know, they're just walking across these beams and stuff. But Bill Pope actually tells some really fun stories about this. He's like, we, we would not do things this way now because there'd be safety people on the ground. We're just up there on these beams 
no harnesses, nothing tying us down. We're just standing up there with a camera, you know. Uh, <laughs> the sequence actually, it required nearly every technique that had been used on previous sequences in the film. Uh, the three-story uh, tall set was built inside of an enormous airplane hangar at the Van Nuys Airport. In fact, it was the it was actually the hangar that had been constructed to house the Spruce Goose. If that tells you how big it was, yeah, that's. I mean, one of the large. biggest air, one of the biggest airplanes that have ever been built. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For the background on the set, they used what they called uh, translites. There was this company that made these things called translites, which are basically giant slides that you'd light from behind. So instead of using like a green screen, they actually put giant, I don't know if they were glass or if they were, they're probably like plexiglass or something. These giant giant slides that they would light to make it look like there's a, you know, a city in the background. And at the time, their 120-foot translite was the largest ever used in Hollywood, although Ghostbusters 2 beat that record not long after these the two movies were filming at around the same time. Uh-huh. The sequence also used highly detailed scale miniatures. We're using a lot of miniatures on this movie. Uh, Bill Mesa's intervision process and several of what Mesa describes as after composite shots, which are basically like they film a scene with the actors or whatever, and then they project those scenes inside of a miniature. So like if you're looking at the miniature from the outside, you'll see the actors inside of it, uh, oh, which okay. I've seen in other movies before. But it's it's a really cool process, I think. Yeah. As we go into like uh, basically about the release and everything, one thing I wanted to mention is like the Sam Raimi interview I, I saw was like, uh, and, you know, he doesn't give many of these. So it's just interesting uh, to see him talk sometimes about a film. Uh, it's like in the middle of like still making the movie, I think. He's he's very uh, upbeat in the, I mean as far as Sam Raimi goes in the thing and he talks a little bit about the studio stuff about how it's interesting for him um they're asking him you know what's different about this versus low budget and everything he was just like well one thing is like we can't be tasteless we have to recalibrate like how we handle a lot of things that I'm not used to uh, I guess here is where I have to decide he's like he, he realizes now he's going to have to start deciding if um. A movie is better if it's independently released or studio level. So he's looking at Dark Man and he says, uh, it's a, a guy does good, a hero and stuff like that. It just feels like a good studio movie. So he seems very happy about it. And he, but uh, at one point in the conversation, somebody says something like, are, are you, you know, what does it, does it feel different or anything? And he's like, I don't know. He's like, I guess a little bit. Uh, he says, uh, quote, I was an independent filmmaker and, now I'm a boy of the studio. I have no control over my life. And I just, thought, <laughs> <laughs> nice. and, uh, I just only thought that was relevant for, uh, well, the release was a little more troubled than I think he expected at that point. Yeah. Yeah. There's a reason that Raimi does not talk about this movie a lot. The interview you're talking about, you said it's, it's like during the filming, right? right. So he doesn't know what's going to happen, but yeah, the, Raimi, if you watch, you know, I think me and Gary both watched this on the Shout Factory Blu-ray, um, and Raimi is not anywhere on there in in the retrospective interviews, commentaries, even that Hollywood Reporter 30th anniversary uh, oral history. Raimi declined to participate. He just doesn't. Th- this movie is kind of a sore spot for him, and a large part of that is because what happens in post production and release. Well, not release necessarily, but leading up to the release. And there, there were a, a few snags during this process, during the post-production process. 
that had to be handled before the movie could be put in front of audiences. Uh, first off was the film's editor. So the studio assigned an editor named David Stiven. Uh, David Stiven spent eight weeks assembling a rough cut only for Raimi to find out that this guy was completely ignoring the director's storyboards. Remember, uh, Raimi is really big on his storyboards. He knows exactly what he wants a movie to look like. It's, it's all in his head. He knows exactly where this is supposed to go. So an editor, I think you actually talked about this last week a little bit, Gary. Uh, the editor basically just has to go by his storyboards and then that's your movie. Uh, it's, it should be an easy gig for an editor, but this guy wasn't going by the storyboards at all. He was actually trying to cut the film like it was a romance. Uh, he was enhancing the romance parts of it, uh, which obviously is not the movie that Raimi is intending to make. And reportedly, Stephen actually had a nervous breakdown and said, I can't do this and left the project. So later, an editor named Bud S. Smith was brought in by the studio, by Universal. So when Universal held preview screenings, Things were uh, not looking great for Darkman. Uh, apparently, people were laughing at all the wrong places and were complaining about the lack of a happy ending. Uh, Universal told Raimi that some viewers rated Darkman the worst film they'd ever seen, and some Universal executives told Raimi that it was one of the worst scoring pictures in Universal Studios history. Wow. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> Which sounds like an exaggeration. Uh, though I don't know why an executive would tell him that as an exaggeration, unless you're just being a real dick, yeah. you know, <laughs> but then they had a couple more screenings that were a little more positive. This was after some additional editing and the addition of Danny Elfman's score, which I fucking love Danny Elfman's yeah. score in this movie. It's so good. Uh, but the film was never one that tapered and Raimi had wanted to make Rob taper would later say the experience with dark man was very difficult for Sam and me. It isn't the picture we thought it should be based on the footage we shot and all that. The studio got nervous about some of the wild things in it and made us take them out, which was unfortunate. I mean, they're taking out the stuff that makes a Sam Raimi movie a Sam Raimi movie. Now, obviously not all of it, because this is very much still a Sam Raimi movie, but like you guys saw Evil Dead 2 and you hired me to do this. So yeah. like this is the movie you're getting. It's kind of kind of how I see it. Yeah. Uh, Taper would later say this. I think this was during that 30th anniversary uh, roundtable. He said that Universal told them there's nothing we can do to save this picture. Let's lock it. So Bud Smith had edited it, still wasn't getting it to where they wanted it. But at, cer at a certain point, Universal's just like, fuck it. We're done with like fiddling with this. We just got to get the movie out in theaters. They were basically just giving up on it and releasing it so they could wash their hands of it and be done with this movie. Yeah, and uh, say, I, I meant to say too. Danny Elfman apparently even threatened to like remove his name from the movie at this time. I mean, not that Danny Elfman, you know, that like Joe Laduca was Sam Raimi's guy. Um, yeah, but Damon. But I don't think that was because he didn't like the movie. I think that it was a. I think that was actually an act of solidarity with Sam Raimi. The way. Well, that that's I what I meant it. because yeah. of because of this. Yeah, it said it that, wasn't uh, like this movie sucks. I don't want my name associated with it. It was. It was him showing solidarity with Sam Raimi and not wanting to be basically not wanting to be credited and paid for his work on the film because it wasn't the movie that they set out to make. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Him and Danny, I mean, obviously are going to be buddies because Spider-Man's coming up eventually right. and stuff. But uh, yeah, yeah. It was because when like Sam Raimi, like, I guess went on vacation, you know, or whatever. And then this whole editing process goes through and yeah, he threatened to remove his name from everything. Yeah. Of course, Tapered and Raimi are understandably very disheartened by this whole situation. 
but then Raimi spoke to an editor, a guy named Bob Morawski, who told him there's a much better movie than what we're locking right now. He's like, this can be fixed. So the decision was made to recut the entire movie. Morawski, Tapert, and Raimi spent 48 hours recutting it and restoring things that they thought they were important. Uh, they ended up adding nine minutes of the movie back in. Of course, they also restructured some things here and there. A lot of that stuff in that nine minutes were things that the preview audiences had not liked, but that they knew were part of what made the film unique. And then they locked the film without telling anyone, without telling Universal. They edited the film and locked it. And by the time Universal knew about it, they had already done the sound mix and the negative the negative with the new sound mix with the sound mix and the new edit had already been cut so there was nothing that the studio could do about it nice <laughs> yeah it's a it's a real ballsy gorilla style move honestly yeah. and i yeah. and i love it uh, to to his credit rob tapert says uh, when he's talking about this he says Bob and I advocated very strongly for the deception sam left to his own probably would not have done that he's not that kind of guy but i am <laughs> that's a that's a good fucking producing partner for you you know yeah there you he's, go. Willing, he's willing to piss people off to get the movie made that ne- the way it needs to be made and i i love that well of course universal's chairman a guy named tom pollock at the time uh was furious he was pissed off that they did this behind his back and didn't tell anybody uh but again by this point there was nothing he could really do about it his hands were tied they'd already scheduled critic screenings which were going to happen just like two days after he found out about it so there's no time to re- recut the movie and do a whole new sound mix and everything on it so they basically just had to release the movie as as it was in this form now well when the film was released in august of 1990 uh A lot of the critics gave it very positive reviews. So, you know, they did something right. Uh, One of my favorite reviews that I found on this was from the New Yorker's uh, Terrence Rafferty, because I I think that he really gets what Sam Raimi is trying to do here. Uh, I'm going to read a a quote from his review. He says, Raimi works from inside the cheerfully violent adolescent male sensibility of superhero comics as if there were no higher style for a filmmaker to aspire to, and the absence of condescension is refreshing. The film's graphic style is all bright colors, high contrast, and skewed angles. Its narrative is breathlessly speedy. Its emotions are basic, mostly greed and revenge, and its dialogue is so crude and punchy that you can practically see the exclamation points. Uh, and I think that <laughs> completely nails what this movie is. Yeah. Uh, because, and, and, and some of those lines in that review could be seen as negative in a, in a different light, but he's saying that, you know, even like the dialogue is crude and punchy. That's something that some critics would say as a criticism, but he's clearly like, this is, it's comic book dialogue. Yeah. You know, you can practically see the exclamation points. Uh, People Magazine's uh, critic, Ralph Novak, was less enthused. He called Darkman a loud, sadistic, stupidly written, wretchedly acted film and the most boring movie since Raimi's 1983 horror film Evil Dead, which persuaded some misguided souls to let him first do a sequel and then this relatively costly number. So it sounds to me like Ralph Novak might need a nap. Uh, yeah, I mean, generally speaking, uh, when you get a movie like this, you know you're gonna search the scour the internet, and uh, you're gonna find people that definitely need a nap. Uh, how about uh, Wild Hal? 
who says it's Razzie worthy. This movie deserves to be skipped. It's loaded with plot holes, devoid of logic, shady effects, and subpar acting. All actors, including Liam, were poor, and the story seems to be written by a kid. Don't waste your time on this. Majestically pathetic. <laughs> Majestically pathetic. I like that turn of phrase, I'll be honest. That's, <laughs> I don't know how you can be pathetic and majestic, but I like the way it sounds. Uh, let's see here. How about, um, let's go with Mark uh, a Demore. I don't know. Anyway, it says, this is absolute drivel. Liam Neeson. No, I love this one because he keeps uh, calling him Liam Neesham. N-E-S-H-A-M. <laughs> sure, why not? Liam Neesham <laughs> must have nightmares about this thing. One reviewer called it rather profound, but I think he was describing himself. The acting, including Neesham, is dreadful. The script is even worse. At least Neesham had the good sense not to return for the sequel. Do not inflict this flick upon yourself or anybody that you care about. <laughs> Well, anyone doesn't have fun with this movie. Continue. <laughs> uh, Joey Stuka. Uh, hey, this review Joey is, Stuka. That's what I felt like, too. <laughs> that, Sorry. That's, well, that's the voice. That you yeah. got to read this one in. Yeah. We did it We did it on Evil Dead 2. You hey. got to bring your, uh, your Andrew Dice Clay voice in on this one. <laughs> this is your rare blemish on the legacy of an otherwise great director. I think I went Tony Soprano a little bit. It's okay. Uh, a little Sean Connery. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's well, I was like, going for like... <laughs> Fucking AJ, listen to me for a second. <laughs> that's, uh, that's actually a pretty good Tony Soprano, Gary. <laughs> Mr. Yeah. Ramey, what went on inside your fucking head? I'm adding the fuckings myself. A great cast. As, as you do. <laughs> and concept squandered by awful acting, overused cliches, and painfully bad script. While the producers were forced to take a bite out of this fetid turd sandwich you should not, unless you like that flavor. <laughs> Turd flavor? <laughs> yeah. <I guess. laughs> so his 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 review is, you'll like this movie if you like the taste of shit. That's his review. Right. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Tony Stuko. <laughs> Tony, uh, Joey. Joey Stuko. Joey, yeah. Sorry. Tony's his dad. <laughs> what about Tyler Reese, who says it's the worst action movie he's ever seen? I guess success turned around for Sam Raimi in 2002 and 2004 with the two Spider-Man films. But first, he created this V-like character in this garage of a movie. That's what he says, garage of a movie. I like V for Vendetta, but not Darkman. If you want to see a badly burned vigilante in a mask, see V for Vendetta. Don't see Darkman. That's the, what, is that is that the only reason that he's comparing the two? Is because so they're is both the, vigilantes and they're both both burned up. Yeah, <laughs> is that, that's pretty much it. Jeez, that's it. Uh, let's see here. This is Rocketeer Raccoon. Darkman is often cited as being the missing link between Sam Raimi's Evil Dead series and his own Spider-Man trilogy. But the truth is, this movie might as well stay forgotten and buried for its own good because it's utter garbage. This movie is an extremely dated mess with bad acting that is way too cheesy and the story itself is terribly weak and it's just all over the place. And then there's the cherry on top of this pile of mess, that pink elephant scene, which is by far the most ridiculous scene in the movie and it's laughingly bad. It's the best goddamn scene in the whole movie. <laughs> 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 uh, fucking elephant. 
Uh, Thomas Christie is going to give us one of the most uh, respectfully like bipolar reviews. I don't I don't know if that's the word. I don't know if that's the word. I don't want to make fun of. I don't want to make light of bipolar disorder. It just feels like it's a little. I can't tell if he's happy or sad. Like the, with the review, I can't tell if I'm happy or sad. Damn, this was a slog. Not that it's too long. It's lean as fuck. Surprised they get through as much plot as they do in that 96 minute runtime. It's just not a good story, in my opinion. It's executed awesomely. Cool makeup effects, shaky but effective green screen, invented camera work. This thing really felt like draft one Spider-Man and with a Batman score ripoff by Elfman himself. It's almost the exact same. Raimi's films really feel like a cross between Three Stooges and Universal Monster movies. This time, it didn't work. (laughs) <laughs> he like it's like one sentence is praise and one sentence he's shitting on the movie. <laughs> exactly, that's what I'm saying. I'm like, what you wait? What you liked it? No, no, nope. you didn't like that. Okay, that like parts cool, of but it. You were not. A How fan many stars did he give it? He gave it uh, one star. Oh well, hmm. okay, interesting. <laughs> usually, these are one star reviews that I find. Finally, we've got Creakery gave it one and a half stars, so a little bit above average. Uh, who said? Extrapolate this dick. <laughs> uh, that's your new sign off now. No, no more made the wings of liberty ever, never lose a feather. It's uh, extrapolate this dick. <laughs> oh my God. I don't know. Oh man. That was your last one? That was it. All right. Well, Luckily, despite some mixed reviews from critics, audiences flocked to the film. It came in number one at the box office on its opening weekend, bringing in about $8 million, and it would later go on to gross nearly $50 million worldwide, which is a considerable hit for 1990. It's not doing Batman numbers, but it's doing pretty good for a movie of its budget. Uh, Its success led to two direct-to-video sequels, released in 1994 and 1996 with Arnold Vosloo, uh, a.k.a. The Mummy. Uh, we all know him as The Mummy, replacing yeah. Liam Neeson as Westlake. And in at least the first of those two, Larry Drake returned as Durant. In addition to these sequels, Darkman had its own comic book sequel. Uh, there are several Darkman novels. There's a Darkman video game, not to mention like a ton of action figures. Dark- I used to have a Darkman action figure. I think it was a Nika uh, action figure or maybe McFarland. I can't remember. I don't know what happened to it. I probably sold it. <laughs> but uh, in 2006, Dynamite Entertainment published a crossover comic book called Dark Man versus Army of Darkness, which saw Dark Man face off against Bruce Campbell's character from the Evil Dead movies. Have you have either of you read that comic? I've I've looked for mm-hmm. it. Uh, I think I I think I remember seeing it on the shelf and yeah. going, oh, I want to get that, but not this time. And I. Then you just never did it. Yeah, I just never got it. Yeah, I would like to read it. I mean, I don't, there are a lot of Army of Darkness like crossover comics in that universe. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's a ton. In 1992, Universal financed a 30 minute television pilot based on Darkman with British actor Christopher Bowen as Westlake and Larry Drake once again returning as Durant. Uh, The pilot was unaired and never got picked up, although you can find it on YouTube. And I did watch it, and it is bad. (laughs) it's very it's very bad i'll I'll try to post the link in the show notes uh to it on youtube but uh uh, larry drake talks about it a little bit in his interview on that shout factory he said he calls it a 
presentation more than a pilot, like something that wasn't ever intended to be aired, but more as like a something to sell the studio on, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and the guy, Christopher Bowen, who plays the Darkman character, he's definitely playing like the way the way he does his voice is a lot closer to Arnold Vosloo's portrayal than Liam oh. Neeson's. Because Arnold Voslo still speaks in his British accent, and so does Christopher Bowen, although Liam Neeson yeah. does not speak in his Irish accent or a British accent in Darkman, so I'm not sure why that decision was ever made in the yeah. sequels. Yeah, it's, it's, a, really, yeah really it's a little confusing why they made it's those choices. Weird. Yeah, Larry Drake talks about that and that, you know, just how it had succeeded in uh, original video sales, like the original Darkman, so they made that sequel and then yeah, we, we talked about, like, Darkman did well in the theaters, but it did really well on video, just like all of Raimi's previous films. Yeah, yeah. and uh, he said he w- they went and watched the sequel at the Hitchcock Theater, and Sam wanted him uh, back. He, he was, like, he was like basically his parents, Sam's parents were there or something, and, yeah. so they, and they were raving about him. We're like, we love, your, <laughs> we love Durant. He's so cool. And, like, Sam Raimi's like, all right, well, we got to get you back. And he was like, well... You've blown me up twice now. <laughs> he's, like, That's it. he's like, it's a cartoon. We can bring you back. It's fine. He's like, well, I want to come back as a brain in a jar or my twin sister or something. <laughs> a but, very uh, ugly twin sister. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's what led to uh, that little presentation or whatever. Yeah. Apparently, they're going to do a TV series. To be honest, you know, looking at it uh, as a potential TV series in a different you know, different set of circumstances. The formula is kind of like Doctor Who. They've created this character who has this particular element that allows him to look like anyone. Yeah. So you can rotate through actors. You know, that's at, true because, like, even even though in the movie and, and including in the sequels, like Westlake creates a mask to mimic his own face, you know, yeah. his face his before he got injured, you right. could really, he there, you could write in a reason for him to not like, maybe he's a fugitive or something and he can't know, he can no longer look like himself. So he has to create a whole nother mask. Yeah. And then you re, you could recast the role <laughs> if you needed yeah. to. Um, I mean, but as it's much honestly as not want. a bad idea for a TV show, like a dark man TV show could definitely be really good if it were, if it were done right, I think. Yeah, I think maybe because I just, you know, we just covered Doctor Who on Computer Resume, but that hit me. and I was just like, oh, man, this could this could have been this could have been a really big thing. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they're they're talking about doing a legacy sequel to this as well. I mean, earlier this year, just a few months ago, Liam Neeson said that he'd be interested in doing a legacy sequel, which would be kind of like Halloween 2018, where it, you know, that ignores the part two and part three and there's just a sequel to dark man where dark man for the last 30 years has been running around as a superhero it could be like the dark knight returns of dark man the dark man returns oh yeah you know oh could be cool and so apparently <laughs> uh neeson is is interested and Raimi has started talking to universal about the possibility of doing a of producing a sequel to dark man so yeah, that's awesome. We'll see if that actually happens because you know my, these, take these my kind of fucking money. And Liam Neeson's not getting any younger. I mean, he's pushing seventy now. I think, right? So yeah. Well, before I go off on my own tangent about how much I love this movie, I actually want to give <laughs> the floor to Todd because Aww. okay, me, me and Gary and Todd, we're all big comic book fans. 
Um, I think it is safe to say, though, that of the three of us, Todd is the biggest comic book fan. I don't that's, think any of us would sweet, argue that. I mean, it's, it's not a compliment. It's just a... <laughs> you're the bigger. I'm taking it as such, dude. Justin. <laughs> I don't a... get many compliments on this show, so I'm taking that. Uh, well, I, I do know for a fact that Todd has been stoked about us talking about Darkman ever since we even started talking about the possibility of doing a Sam Raimi series, which I think was like something we've had planned since the, we started this podcast yeah, uh, so. two years ago. Yeah. Uh, of course, Darkman isn't based on a comic book, but it feels like it's based on a comic book. So then I have to ask you, Todd, what is it about Darkman as a fan of comics and as a fan of superheroes? What is it about Darkman that appeals to you? I, it ticks so many boxes. It's just kind of, you know, if you're, if you're into kind of, some gruesome horror type stuff with like really unique looking uh gooey type uh prosthetics and effects and stuff like that this is your movie if you dig the revenge superhero type thing this is your movie if you dig just big over-the-top performances this is your movie do you like stunt work this is your movie like do you want a comfort movie oddly enough this is your movie yeah. it's i mean my wife will tell you the story of my wife, she, my my wife. wife. Uh, when she and I first got together and, and we moved in together, I would, um, this was a white noise movie for me. She had never seen it. And I was like, Hey, do you mind if I put on a movie? It helps me go to sleep. And she's like, yeah, sure. And I popped in dark man. And the first <laughs> scene is the dude getting his fingers cut she's off. Like, How the fuck do you fall asleep to this? Yeah. She goes, what the is this movie and she still married you and she's still the funny part is after that scene she turned to say that to me and i was already asleep like i <laughs> that's I just, funny I, this is one of those ones I, i've mentioned it a bunch that a lot of my mu movie viewing as a as a kid was done on television mm -hmm. uh my my family wasn't big on going to the theater we didn't have enough money for any of the premium channels or anything like that so i saw this probably with commercials uh formatted to fit my screen that sort of thing but i just fell in love with it it's a little bit of the shadow it's a little bit of batman it's a little bit of comedy it's a little bit of horror it's a lot of bit of action and man it's it's just it's so great i have one more personal story connected to this film. And I mean, it's not really any, you know, thing, you know, too shocking or anything, but like, I remember I was at uh, one of my first jobs. I was working the YMCA and I got like a really bad cold. I'm totally congested. My voice dropped like three octaves. It was, it was bad. And one of our members came in and he goes, uh, Ooh, you sound pretty rough. I was like, yeah, he goes, you need some rock and Ryan. I was like, I don't know what that is. He goes, it's, <laughs> he goes, go to the liquor store, ask him for rock and rye. And I said, okay, fine. So my, I actually worked the early shift at the YMCA. So my shift was done at 10 AM. So I walked into the liquor store looking like a raging alcoholic. Who's like, <laughs> I gotta have rock and rye. Uh, but I went up to the guy. I was like, Hey, do you have rock and Ryan? Of course he heard my voice. He goes, Ooh, you have a cold. I said, yeah. He goes, listen, I'm going to tell you how to prepare this thing. And he walked me through the steps and I went home with a pint and did exactly what he told me. And I was like, well, I'm going to sit here and drink this. And while I'm sitting here drinking this, I popped in dark man. And by, and of course, drank the entire pint of 
rock and rye. So I, and again, I was pretty young and didn't drink a lot. So by the end of the movie, I'm hammered drunk. Uh, <laughs> Honestly, the best way to watch this movie. Yeah. Uh, but in my own mind, and I had started like doing some creative writing and stuff like that. So as I'm watching this, uh, I was like, oh, this could be a really big thing. And I started coming up with backstories for all the henchmen and like all the different routes that this thing could have gone and expanding this universe. And I, those were the thoughts as I face planted into bed and uh, <laughs> woke up, woke up about four hours later, feeling like a million bucks. Like my cold was gone and I had nice. some great ideas for dark. <laughs> <laughs> it's so, so weird that rock and rye was such a thing. Like I remember my parents who I, I grew up in a fairly strict evangelical household and they did not drink and still to this day do not drink. Yeah. And there was still always rock and rye just in case somebody yeah. got a cold. Yeah, I remember moving here when I first moved here, I got sick and my dad gave me rock and rye. <laughs> yeah, it's super yeah. weird is that but a southern thing or is that like a thing everywhere to, to be honest like uh i mean i don't know if it was like specifically mr boston's but if you go and like google image search you can find prescriptions that doctors wrote their patients with rock and rock and rock oh it started <laughs> it started in in like the 18 late 1800s i remember looking this up one time it was like yeah. pharmacy stocked rock and rye yep for colds it was tax less than uh regular liquor too because it was i mean pharmacy like, stocked cocaine at one point too so well, yeah. I, I, i'm just saying <laughs> so like their profits were like off the chain because they were just like they didn't have to pay as much tax or anything because yeah. it, it was huh. like medicinal <laughs> and listen, listen I'm it, does do a video, it does I'm gonna nothing it does do a video probably this coming week of i feel like Todd, it's definitely like Todd's a placebo I don't know, dude. Like the way the way I did it, like I ended up like sweating a lot because I mean it's a whole pint of like pretty strong alcohol. Yeah. But uh I combine it now with like I'll you know, I'll drink that, but I'll also eat like a bunch of really spicy spaghetti and like the spice like opens me up, the whiskey dries me out. Wow, Listen, I'm sure cer certain things help symptoms. First of all, a cold is a virus, so nothing kills it right but, right yeah let's fight yeah. yeah we have not but listen cinema shock guys have not discovered the cure for the common cold this is not a this is a, we're not giving medical we are advice. not medical no we are not medically trained professionals and but apparently rock and rye and spicy spaghetti are the way to get <laughs> cold well all right yeah. back to dark man though so uh but yeah todd i mean that's kind of you know I kind of assumed that this would be something that appealed to you largely because it does feel like a, almost like a Batman story, very you know, much. I mean, not, not his origin, obviously, but he's a very like Batman esque character. He's by necessity. He is a creature of the night. You know, he has oh, yeah. to only go out at night like Batman does, you know? Yeah. But I, th I think what's interesting you is say that, but he definitely puts on those fucking faces that it spends a lot of time out during the day. Yeah, he does. But but can, canonically, he is supposed to only be out at night. That's why he's, he's called, called Dark Man. Man but he, <laughs> he be he be walking around in daylight. <laughs> he does. He does. <laughs> you know, the, the original superhero movie and what I mean by that is original superhero, like not one that's based on a, a an existing property are kind of rare. Yeah, uh, you know, I mean, there are there are others. Uh, some some of the other ones are good. Some not so much. You've got like Meteor Man, 
which I would put under the not so much category. <laughs> You've got uh, M-, M. Night Shyamalan's Unbreakable would be one. Uh, the Incredibles, you know, the Pixar movie, The Incredibles. Yeah. Uh, blank James- Man. Blank, yep, Blank Man. Uh, James <laughs> Gunn's Super. Uh, Hancock, Chronicle. Like, there, there are a lot of them. But for some reason, a lot of these movies yeah. get left out a lot of times. Uh, they get left out of, of the conversations during discussions of like best superhero movies. Like you're never going to ah. see, you know, anytime there, there's a discussion about best superhero movies, you're never going to see dark man or super on there, even though they are superhero movies, you know, yeah. but, yeah. Pres- and that's presumably because they're not based on an existing property and there's no built-in fan base for them. Or they're uh, just not as good. I mean, Super and I Dark mean, Man are exceptions to that rule. Yeah, okay. Chronicle's really good. Unbreakable's oh, yeah, really good. I mean, there are, shut up. There are good movies. <laughs> there are good ones. Uh, you know, and there are a lot of really bad superhero movies too. I mean, prior to Dark Man and prior to Tim Burton's Batman, I mean, superhero properties were being sold left and right to like low budget studios like albert pyun made the fucking captain america movie he's you know like like low budget canon films you know that's why so many of them were so bad but let me tell you something a realization that just hit me just now is that uh after batman um you know which sparked some interest obviously it was huge uh superhero i mean the batman trilogy worked fine or whatever not trilogy well the quadrilogy quadrilogy they worked okay but say that's established franchise the superhero movies never really took off until sam raimi's spider-man right like sam well well, i mean i think i think most people credit that and brian singer's x-men those are kind of them that's for the current like wave of of superhero stuff that we're still seeing i'm just saying maybe sam raimi helped keep the torch alive for comic book movies yeah i mean he he definitely had I mean, that, this is probably a conversation for when we do Spider-Man down the line, but he's definitely highly responsible for what's currently going on in, in superhero movies. But, I mean, Tim Burton's Batman, there were definitely imitators, but nothing quite, nothing else quite gelled, other than really Darkman. I mean, there are a lot of other ones, and there are some, you know, like The Crow things that are based on comic book movies that aren't necessarily superheroes, but they were kind of part of that same wave. I feel like, so there are some here and there, but they never quite caught on the way that these brightly colored, you know, more vibrant superhero movies like we're getting now are. Do you know Uh, in some way, shape or form, we've mentioned every single in this podcast, we've mentioned every single movie I have for further viewing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so, I, I feel like uh, of those movies, the, the like original superhero movies, you know, the ones that are not based on an existing property. Some of them are very good. You know, I mentioned some that I think super is incredible. I think, uh, I think Chronicle is really good, unbreakable, but I don't think any of them actually feel like they're try. with the exception of like the, the Incredibles, the Pixar movie uh, is the exception, but I think, most of them don't feel like they're trying to emulate the feel of a comic book. And even the ones that uh, are, don't, don't do it as well as Darkman does. I don't think Darkman is trying to make you feel, it's not just a superhero movie. It's a comic book movie that just isn't based on a comic book. Like that's what Sam Raimi's going for. Like he, he's got these crazy shots. Like the, the shot of Darkman shot from like the bottom on the top of a building. Like that's a fucking Batman shot. That's a Batman 
comic book panel, you know? Uh, And he does that throughout the movie where he's trying to make shots that look like they're part of a comic book, even though this isn't based on a comic book. I would say Darkman deserves to be in conversation of the best superhero movies ever, regardless of the fact that it's not actually based on a comic book. I mean, there's even that like comic book stuff of like, when his hand from the helicopter and he runs along the top of that truck, that shot following. Yeah. Yeah. That's just that. Yeah. It's a, I don't know. Anyway, he's definitely got that, still that cartoon sensibility about it. For sure. Yeah. And Raimi, of course, he grew up as a comic book kid. Uh, as we all know, he'll, he'll go on to make other comic book movies about a decade after this, but his Spider-Man movies is as good as they were. I mean, well, two out of three ain't bad. Uh, they don't, I think, meld with Raimi's aesthetic in the same way that Darkman does. I mean, there are glimpses of it, especially in part two, especially in Doc Ock's uh, big you know, horror movie scene. That's, a, that's, yeah. you know, that's the big Sam Raimi scene in that. But Darkman feels like a, a Sam Raimi movie, like what we think of as Raimi-esque beginning to end. Yeah. No, I mean, coming right. off coming off of Evil Dead 2, Raimi creating a Raimi coming off of Evil Dead 2 and going, I'm going to make a superhero and I'm going to make a superhero whose skin just melts off of his body. Like that just feels right. <laughs> like that just feels like the, <laughs> the, the next logical move for the guy who make, made Evil Dead 2 uh, to go to when he makes a, a superhero movie, you know, yeah. uh, like this. Do, do you guys feel like this is more Raimi-esque than his later superhero movies? Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's, there's enough, there's enough Raimi isms, even small in part in Spider-Man and certainly in, uh, you know, Dr. Strange where they are specifically superhero movies, mm-hmm. but you, you kind of, you, you kind of have to look a little bit closer to get those Raimi isms. Um, yeah. And, know, and, and like the, when they, and when certain scenes like the Doc Ock scene or the, the zombie stuff in, uh, in, in dark and uh, Dr. Strange, they almost stick out a little bit more in, yeah. in, within the surrounding movie because the rest of the movie doesn't feel as much like an evil, like the guy who made Evil Dead made this movie. I, this I didn't movie, say that for the original too. Like I was just thinking yeah. of Green Goblin stuff, like the sleep or the, yeah. I don't know, just like the weird scenes <laughs> with Willem Dafoe as Green Goblin. We're like now after watching so much Sam Raimi, I'm like, man, it really is like you can tell Sam Raimi's in there, but mm-hmm that some people watching it outside of that context might be kind of like, that's a weird, it's a weird moment. Yeah. Yeah. Weird, weird choice. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and you know, we keep calling dark man, a superhero, but he's not exactly a superhero in the way that we normally think of superheroes. Right. Because he's, I mean, dark man is a pretty hard R action movie. I mean, it is gruesome. Like his makeup alone would not be allowed in most PG-13 movies, unless it's a Marvel movie, because the stuff in Doctor Strange is pretty gruesome as well, but they get yeah. by because they are a billion-dollar company and they can do whatever they want with the MPAA, but we won't right. get into that. Right <laughs> <now>. <laughs> Same thing with Christopher Nolan's Batman movies. Those are R-rated movies that got a PG-13 rating 100% because they're yeah. Batman. Anyway. <laughs> but Darkman, the main character, is is not really trying to like protect the innocent or serve justice. Uh, at least not until the end credits roll when he is, he kind of accepts his destiny or whatever. Yeah. But prior to that, 
Darkman is just on a roaring rampage of revenge. The only person that he cares about protecting is Francis McDormand's character. Uh, yeah. He doesn't wear a cape. He never even goes by the name of Darkman. He doesn't name himself that until the like the very last scene of the movie. It's so, the very last word. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. The very his his little voiceover at the very yeah, end. Unless yeah. you watch the opening uh, Blu-ray uh, title scene, like the menu page, because well, that is, I don't think that counts as part of the movie. Man. <laughs> so I mean, I guess the question for y'all then is: Is Dark Man a superhero? Yeah, I mean, I don't. Or know is why he just a vigilante? I was gonna say because he also say, murders but... the shit out of people. Yeah, that would that okay. Vigilante is more the other accurate. Thing. I think you know it's a distinction of, uh, you know, he does have is... superpowers though, right? He it, doesn't well... feel pain. He can change his face, and he's got he's got uh, enhanced strength. Yeah, uh, it's I I think this is this is another discussion i think that could and again be batman own. doesn't have any superpowers either so exactly um i think i'm this, happy this for us to turn discussion. the bonus episode into a discussion on what's a superhero <laughs> <laughs> i think i mean i think it could be its own bonus episode that you know because it's a it's a deep discussion of like who do you could take the mainstream heroes and classify them out because batman's considered a superhero but he's not super powered so is he and the punisher is definitely not a superhero exactly right. the example i was thinking of yeah. is yeah the punisher exactly. wouldn't, i guess he's not so and let's let's not forget acting outside of the law is a form of vigilantism which is a felony <laughs> <laughs> so yeah uh you know from, from, I mean, they definitely from, play from your in, paralegal expert. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we'll talk about it later, but they they definitely um, play into that a little bit in the sequel, where like they're investigating this vigilante, uh, yeah. and and in that pilot, actually, the in the opening scene of that pilot, uh, it's they're showing police like investigating a crime scene where where uh, Darkman's taken out Durant's goons, and they're like there are like whispers of this Darkman, kind of like a, a very very Batman esque in that way. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So earlier in this episode, I, I praised the performances of Liam Neeson and Francis McDormand. Uh, I think they're I think their performances are very important to the film's overall success. Uh, for proof, check out the Neeson less sequels where Darkman is barely a character at all. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but make no mistake, regardless of like how good they are, this is Sam Raimi's movie. Uh, Darkman presented him a chance to show off in ways that he had never been able to before because of its budget and he does it like from the get-go with that warehouse scene that opens the movie which has he, he it's almost like Raimi's like all right i gotta i gotta triple the budget i've ever had before let's start this movie with a scene with that has a shootout and cars flipping over and explosions and then it all ends with the bad guy chopping a dude's fingers off with a cigar cutter like he's like i'm gonna go all out on this opening <laughs> scene and just show you guys the ride that you're in for like it, yeah. it's fun it's nasty because i mean it's very violent because of the the finger cutting thing yeah you know? yeah uh and, but speaking of nasty uh let's talk about my favorite scene in the film i mentioned it earlier but it's the carnival scene the, uh. one of one of gary's reviews hated this scene but i love this scene this is like the sam raimi school of filmmaking in this scene i feel like it's wild uh <laughs> he's got like this weird sideshow freak that's there for no real reason at all he's a um, freak 
<laughs> but it's very com- complex, like prosthetics on him too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it's got that great Liam Neeson freak out where he hand- he bends the carney's finger back, and it definitely looks uh. like rub. It like looks rubber, but like intentionally so, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then of course they, that iconic "take the fucking elephant," you know, <laughs> one of the greatest lines in, in cinema history. Um, and and I love he does it in this scene, but he does it in other scenes. This back projection thing that he does, that Sam Raimi does, yeah, where it zooms into Liam Neeson's mouth or his eyes. It's got all this wacky stuff going on behind him. He actually did that in Crime Wave a little bit too. Remember, like when the guy's getting electrocuted, and it's cussing the scene where it's like this kind of cartoony, like electrical thing around his head. Uh, he's doing yeah. the same thing here, but he does it more here than he does in any other movie. Uh, but I mean, it's just weird, very weird decisions that I feel like not a lot of directors would do because it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but it looks cool. You know, it's one of those things. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Dark Man is a pretty zany movie overall, but the sheer like slapstick chaos of this carnival scene <laughs> is just, I think that's just Raimi at his best. Yeah. And then it ends with Liam Neeson's face bubbling off, you know, which is a great way to end <laughs> the scene, which I love that effect so much. I mean, that, that actually makes me think, is Dark Man a body horror movie? Ooh. I mean, it's clearly like got some elements of body it's horror. It's got some body it. horror yeah. stuff yeah, going on. It sure. really does. I hadn't thought about that until just now. But with the like the face melty stuff, that's very like Cronenbergy. Yeah. You know, that's very. Well, body I mean, horror. and I think bringing in the brother to make sure some of the medical stuff holds a little bit of water, mm-hmm. and then them going to get, um, you know, uh, David Copperfield's folks so that we can see the process of of the machine itself yeah. making the thing i think lends to the legitimacy of what he's doing in his lab and yeah i i think yeah i think it could easily be qualified as a body horror i think so i mean yeah. it's, it's 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 got body horror elements i, I guess you is sure. the best way to say it one of the but, one of the things that i saw was that keep people kept referring to it as operatic and it was a thought yeah. that i had in my head and if you listen to a couple of the lines of dialogue from Liam Neeson, you can almost, it's, it's almost a little musical, you know, the, yeah, I can see that. You no, know, what is it about the talk? What secrets does it you hold? See, yeah. I mean, it's like very melodramatic, yeah. like, you know, when you, see, the, you see interviews with, you see interviews with <laughs> Liam Neeson, he definitely describes it as like part of the, what inter- interested him was that it felt very operatic. So he was yeah. definitely thinking about that, which yeah. is like Ramey's thing. I mean, that's the, the same thing that he, was going for well when when Joe Laduca was scoring Evil Dead Two, Jello, he was going for something very big, and he described that as operatic because yeah. opera. I mean, I'm not, I am no opera expert. I've never been to the opera. I, my my opera expertise is pretty low, but it's very exaggerated. That's you from know? an opera. This piece of art. In my I don't. I can't see what that opera. is. That's okay. nor, nor can our listeners. That's <laughs> no, okay. <laughs> but it's very like over the top, very big, very extravagant, and that's yeah. very Sam Raimi. Everything's yeah. big and over the top and extravagant. At least on these films. Obviously, he gets into some films later in his career where he reigns it in a little bit. But that's what we love about Sam Raimi is that over the top quality. Yeah. You know. And here comes another Batman comparison. The final, the final scene in in uh, Tim Burton's Batman. I think was almost ripped from an opera where it's, you know, at the top of the, at the top of the church and the whole thing. Um, I think there's a story about 
Nicholson uh, seeing some sort of opera there in New York. And, you know, it was kind of thrown together a little last minute. But that whole once Batman gets to the top of the church, it's very, very operatic. Oh, yeah. And yeah. yeah. And of course, with Elfman's music and yada, yada, yada. Well, Darkman, I think, is great because of what Raimi does with it. Yeah. It's not because it's not great because of it. It's script because its script is OK. You know, the characters are the concepts are fun. The script itself is just OK. Uh, and it's not great because of its action sequences, which are mostly pretty rudimentary. I, I, I think that Raimi gets a lot better with action later on in his career. Uh, I mean, obviously, the, the action scenes in Spider-Man are next level. But here he's like, this is the first time he's really shot like true action scenes. And they're good. They're not bad. They're just not like we're not we're not like gushing over them like we did on some of the ones on, on James Cameron's series. Cause yeah. James Cameron is one of the greatest action filmmakers of all time. Uh, the science is a little bit silly. Uh, the big reveal with Strack is if you didn't see that coming, you've never watched a movie before. <laughs> uh, and the explanation of dark man's powers just like gets dumped as exposition in the hospital scene. This is like, we're just going to explain everything. You know, uh, The climactic, helicopter chase has some incredible stunts but it also has some kind of shitty looking green green stuff that i don't think has aged particularly well but i, I get, adds to the film's charm in my opinion because i like that stuff but i i understand when people don't but what makes darkman work so well is sam raimi because he's got a very unique style he's got a very unique vision and he brings something to darkman that has never been seen in the superhero genre prior to this or really after this even in his own superhero movies you know in an essay that he wrote on the film a a writer named jacob knight who was he was writing for birth movies death uh r.i.p uh but jacob knight's a a great great writer and he he wrote a little essay about darkman that I, i came across and i think he said it really best when he described darkman as the product of pure imagination punch drunk on cinema instead of intellectual property and that's i think something that is is I hadn't thought about with this movie is that Raimi is able to do some shit with the Darkman character that he would not have been allowed to do if he had had the bat Batman or the Shadow or something like that because there's no baggage. He's yeah. just able to run wild and make a Sam Raimi movie. Yeah, that's a big thing with the comic book movies. I mean, you know, I may be the biggest comic book nerd on the show, but all three of us are very well versed in many of the bigger comic book uh, IPs that are out there. And we go to this, we go to these films that get produced with some expectations. Um, And yeah, it can really, it, it hinders, it hinders our, it hinders us as the audience and it, and it puts shackles on the, on the filmmakers, but yeah, with something like this, there, there are only a few filmmakers (laughs) that can, I think, break through that. James Gunn, I think is one of them. Right. Uh, Tim Burton was able to do it with Batman, but that's rare, and it, and it wouldn't be able to be done today with Batman. I don't think, even though I mean the last Batman movie that came out is pretty pretty amazing. I think, but a lot of times, like especially in Marvel, they're they they are really shackled, like you said, by the property, so they're not able to really make like a an a, they're not able to be an auteur, which is what Sam Raimi is. Yeah. Well, you're you're finally seeing like I mean with stuff like Marvel that there's it feels like they're starting to open up a little bit more, and it's they probably are. after they've had the success that they've had. So like Sam Raimi's Doctor Strange, you can definitely get a lot of Sam Raimi in yeah. in that movie. But, yeah, they are opening it up a little bit more, and I because I think that they've they've learned a little bit. I think James Gunn's 
uh, Guardians of the Galaxy was a big part of that because he was able to make a movie that fit within the Marvel mold that's still very clearly a very personal James Gunn movie. And then he did even more with, I think, The Suicide Squad. And now he's heading all of DC films, which good for him. Yeah. Uh, you know, which is awesome. But uh, but for the first while on those Marvel movies, like they all really did feel the same. And it's because they were trying to make them all feel the same. <laughs> like yeah. it, it was very intentional. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I get it for them. I'm not I'm not going to totally crap on them because it's obviously a form, formula that worked. It's uh, working. They're making billions of dollars. Right. So <laughs> so they, they kept it like secure to what they knew they could get away with. But now, especially since Disney Plus has come along and you can open yourself up to lots of shows and everything mm -hmm. else, they're given more creative freedom yeah. to things. And I'm sure that a guy like Sam Raimi, the only reason he signed on probably was the fact that he could have a little more uh opportunity with yeah. dr strange than he would working on a very previously. big canvas yeah you, you do uh think back and regret things like uh you know this is a whole other podcast again but like things like an ant-man by a garage or something like that although right. those have done fine on their own too so it's uh it's just you know a guy like edgar i could bring a lot to the marvel universe but it's sure. like yeah yeah he probably is the same way he's like i, I got i got my own voice i got to get in here so right yeah exactly I'm everyone and no one. Everywhere, nowhere. Call me Dark Man. All right, guys. So I guess it's the time in the show where we get into further viewing. This is where we uh, we kind of like pair another movie with, in this case, Dark Man, the movie we're talking about, with uh, you know something that would make a good double feature with the movie that's our subject. So uh, let's start with Todd today. What do you, what do we, what are we pairing Todd? Um, I think because I, this is another one that, uh, you know, Justin's not fond of it, but I, this is just another little gem of a movie that it's, it's, it just warms my heart in the special little, special little places. And uh, I love, I love 1994, the shadow. Um, yeah, we've already talked about it a couple of times here. Yeah, it's I mean, been to, to be plenty of times. fair, I have not seen it in years, so it, it I, might be worth me doing a revisit. I was going to say, take take a take another look at it, because I, we've already mentioned, uh, you know, Alec Baldwin. You got Penelope Ann Miller. We mentioned Kindergarten Cop earlier. She plays Dominic's mother. Oh, but, I know. Uh, yeah. So uh, <laughs> there's another connection there. Uh, Peter Boyle is amazing and hysterical. Ian McKellen. As... Oh man, I didn't. I I totally forgot Ian McKellen was in it. Yeah, wow. I mean, he... at the time, I wouldn't have known who he was. Right, right. Uh, yeah, this was obviously long before you know uh, the X Men movies and long before uh, the Lord of the Rings movies and mm -hmm. all that. But uh, you've also got Jonathan Winters and nice. Tim Curry. Like it's, it's what a cast. Such, it's it's a really <laughs> a, fun movie. That's a hell of a cast, honestly. And it kind of, I think if if we're talking about dark man and batman i think somewhere in the middle is the shadow because mm -hmm. i think there's a little bit uh there's more there's more of a polished comic book yeah feel to this and uh the the look of dark man and the look of the shadow are almost identical <laughs> yeah yeah um but i mean you you got this really earnest performance from uh liam neeson oh man i and, thought you were going to say an earnest performance from jim varney 
<laughs> no, 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 no. That's the, that's a different discussion. <laughs> uh, but you know, Alec Baldwin, it's Alec Baldwin. Like you can see, you you can see the funny side, the heroic side, the action side, and it's all in there. It's all in that performance. And I, I'm I'm on board for it. I think this would be a great double feature. I'm Dark. I'm not gonna disagree. I mean, even though, like I said, I have not seen it in many years. Uh, I think it's a pretty that's a good yeah. that's a good choice for a double yeah. feature yeah, with, yeah. with Darkman. Give, give it a second look sometime. That kind of pulp hero, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You see that? Maybe I'll maybe I'll uh, rent it or something here soon. How about you, Gary? Well, I'm gonna say uh, movies that we've already talked about. Um, <laughs> uh, I would say like RoboCop is one I thought of. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Uh, also, uh, The Crow. And mm-hmm. uh, I guess Bro, we, we vaguely, I think, may have mentioned this, but also starring Bruce Campbell, a maniac cop, I feel like, would actually yeah. kind of interestingly work in here. Nice. Yeah, I could see that. Why maniac cop? Well, I just, I just, I don't know. I was thinking of like vigilante. Uh, well, and and I know that it's a little t- more twisted in maniac cop, uh, the original, but um, it just like. The guy's murdered. I don't know. I think it was basically just the guy's murdered and comes back. But something about the feeling of that movie, like his just, face uh, is all fucked up. Yeah, but also <laughs> like I feel like the cinematography. Really, so I mean, it, it's never as big as Dark Man by any means, but it, it feel like I don't know. I just feel like you could watch them back to back and it would feel yeah similar. I mean, I think the most obvious pick here is Tim Burton's back Batman that almost goes without saying, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a, a dark take on a superhero movie like this. And it's not have, it's not really afraid to have fun and be a little silly when it's needed. Cause Tim Burton's Batman is a little silly regardless of how like goth it wants to be. Yeah. yeah. Plus it's got that Danny Elfman score, which uh, just, I know one of those reviews said it was a rip off. Dark man score was a rip off of Batman, but no, that's just like, what a Danny Elfman score sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's just his style. Uh, but the two do have a similar vibe, even if dark man, I think leans into its cartoonishness a little bit more, but that's fair. Uh, the other ones I, I thought of, you know, if, if Batman's a little too obvious, then uh, these are actually some similar ones to what Gary was saying. So we're kind of on the same page, but I thought of Alex Proyas, the crow, which yeah. is another, it's not as fun. It's a lot more serious than Dark Man. Yeah, uh, yeah. But it's another dark tale of revenge, you know, but I think they could work as a good double feature. Okay. And then the other one, another tale of revenge against the people who created you, just like Dark Man. And it's one Gary mentioned. It's one that we've talked about on the podcast before, but I think Paul Verhoeven's RoboCop and Dark Man would make a great double feature. So we I are. Hadn't, one- I hadn't considered that one, but that is. That is yeah. great. Yeah. yeah. So I, I'm glad that Gary, me and Gary are very much on the same page here because I think Darkman and because they're Darkman and, and Robocop are both very over the top. They're both a little bit silly. They're both a little bit grotesque. Robocop's very grotesque. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, in the gore and stuff. And I don't know. They, they just feel very similar, even though one's set in like modern day LA and the other one's in futuristic Detroit. But thematically, and just the whole, the vibe just feels kind well, of the like same. a body like Robocop, horror theme to it. Yeah, too. Robocop yeah. really does feel like it could be based on a comic book as well, just like Darkman. And of yeah. course, both of them became comic books later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Robocop was definitely of... my number one, and it just it yeah. just has that same like the 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 protagonist is like disfigured and mm-hmm. like just uh, you know struggling with their own humanity. And uh, I don't yeah, know. it's a 
It's it's a really good. Uh, I think those would make a really good double feature. And there, of course, there are plenty of other ones you could choose from because there are lots of other things that came from that post Batman glut of superhero movies, uh, like The Shadow or or The Phantom. They both uh, shoot you know, somebody in the dick. No, they <laughs> well, don't. But does Darkman ever shoot? Hit Darkman no. should shoot somebody. Everyone, every superhero <laughs> movie should should feature a guy getting shot in the dick. <laughs> uh, well. That's our further viewing segment. So, uh, Gary, before we get into wrap up on this, I know that sometimes you have you like to you like to give us a little fun fact, Paul Blart style, you know. <laughs> yep. So, do do you have any fun facts that we have not hit on yet for Darkman? Uh, so you know, I feel like we should emphasize a little bit more because you kind of breezed over it just really quick. Uh, the uh, Oldsmobile is in this movie. You mentioned it. Yep. Coen Brothers are driving it. Yeah, uh, Darkman yells like, "Watch out!" To it. Yeah, it's uh, in the scene where he's dangling the... from the helicopter, and he he gets, I think he gets like hit into the Delta eighty eight, the classic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, so that's that's important. Uh, but let's see. Uh, Dan Hicks, Skip, uh, he doesn't die in the movie, really. Like you just assume he's he's finished off. He actually had a whole death scene worked out, uh, and they filmed it. And for some reason, it was lost to the ether. Uh, it was uh, basically like Darkman shows up to his room. And uh, I think uh, Raimi uh, steals this line, but he's just like, tell me what you know. And he's like, I've already told you what, what I know. And he's like, uh, let's pretend you didn't or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, um, the guy gets thrown. Like he, he, he talks about like they had the whole set where like the walls were turned and the set to like make the floor because he they drop like he uh drops the guy through uh he drops his leg like through the hole <laughs> like but it's it's really like um dark man takes him by the neck and throws him through walls basically and so he was describing how that was filmed but anyway i just thought it was interesting and they cut it out because like the, part... the set was turned like yeah like when yeah. they did the uh bruce campbell getting all the blood thrown at him and exactly evil dead too okay that's exactly right yeah and and then they drop the guy through the holes but it makes it look like when dark man like throws him he just throws through yeah, yeah. That's cool. I'd like to see that. And nice. uh, yeah, there's apparently a scene too. He holds him up on the neck against the wall and he like punches around his head to try to get information out of him. But according to him, you could see some like hydraulic thing they had in his arm where it was like uh, hitting the wall and it yeah. uh, it fucked it up. They never used it. Uh, Liam Neeson says he still has his hat and short from Dark Man. He hangs on to that. He stole him. Uh, yeah. yeah. He uh, <laughs> he also had a fear of heights, so they filmed some like green screen stuff with him, like hanging. And uh, Sam told him not to worry about it, and they left him fifty feet in the air. And he like uh, didn't realize it until he like looked down and saw he was fifty feet in the <laughs> hanging air, hanging from the helicopter, hanging from the helicopter. <laughs> and he said he was frozen, completely frozen, ruined everything. Um, and Larry Drake, on the other hand, it's his very first helicopter ride, and he said Sam sent him up alone. Uh, the first time when they first got the helicopter and uh, just to see Larry Drake believes to see if he would barf when stuff happened. And he said the helicopter just started doing weird shit. He said he remembered just like being above a freeway, like sideways looking down in the street right directly below him. Oof. And it was like it was like it was like a lesson in centrifugal force, he said. <laughs> like, he was just <laughs> like, I'm only in here because he's like, I've got the seatbelt, but he's like, I'm in here because of centrifugal force. But he loved it, and he said that Sam, after that, would always be like, you want to go up in the helicopter? Let's go up in the helicopter. <laughs> and so, 
there was that. Um, this was the first direct-to-video release that Universal ever did. Uh, or I'm sorry, part two was the first. I was about to say, this, is, yeah, this yeah. is not direct video <laughs> Because of the sales of this one. Sorry, that's what yeah. I have to say. In his memoir, If Chins Could Kill, Bruce Campbell explains that in a rough cut of this film, there was a scene where uh, Louis Strack Jr., the main antagonist, uh, played by Colin Frills, uh, spreads gold all over the covers of his bed, strips hey, naked, yeah. and lays on top of it, laughing maniacally. And uh, in ecstasy, uh, and it was deemed by a test audience as too disturbing, and so they cut it from the film. Uh, and Campbell does not understand that because he thought that that was his personal favorite. I think scene. I think one of the the uh, Universal execs like turned to him during a screening and says, "There's no fucking way this is making the final movie." <laughs> <laughs> There was another thing uh, that if you watch back, uh, Durant is, uh, there's a hint that Durant and Ricky, uh, played by Sam Raimi's version, uh, our brother version, Sam Raimi's brother, uh, are a gay couple. Like Durant will touch him in scenes and be like, I'm so proud of you. And I mean, I I know he likes Ricky. I got (laughs) I definitely got, I mean, you definitely get that vibe from the final product too, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's yeah. still there. I just think it like gets blown past by some people, but it's it's definitely yeah. there that they're they're like a couple or something. Yeah. Um, you mentioned in the casting, uh, this is the final one. Uh Jenny Agutter, uh American Werewolf in London, is in the is the burn ward doctor in there. But one person we didn't mention is that John Landis is the has, bearded and doctor. Mass physician. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he has the large glasses. <laughs> uh, who who's watching? Uh, he'll reprise that role in Spider-Man Two during the no, Doc Ock scene. No shit. Oh no wow! Shit. <laughs> and uh, it says he he's the doctor. Like there's a scene where the uh, his glasses reflect the tentacle waking up. And, oh, uh, that's, yeah. and that's John Landis. And it's John Landis. I had no idea. The murderer himself, John Landis. <laughs> wow. Manslaughter. Manslaughter. Yeah. So there you go. There's just well, I've got a facts. I've got a fun fact. Okay. So Bruce Campbell, Bruce Campbell had just gotten divorced from his first wife in uh just before the filming of this began, and he was broke. <laughs> and it would have been nice probably for him to get the lead in a universal film, uh, but the studio wouldn't allow that. But in post-production, Sam called Bruce and he's like, uh he he He's like, well, I, I got some problems like in, on this movie. I need, I need a little bit of help, Bruce. So Bruce comes in to help him. Uh, and, and a lot of his contributions were actually in sound production. I mean, he, he doesn't get credited in this at all, but he worked. Bruce Campbell worked in the sound department on this film. Wow. Uh, he actually ended up doing ADR voiceover for every criminal. This is according to Bruce Campbell for every criminal who fell to their death. So Bruce Campbell's just in the studio, just screaming a lot, like Will Hel- Will <laughs> ah! scream style. Uh, every time you see a, 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 a villain fall to their death, the voice is Bruce Campbell's. Uh, and at oh, one point, wow. at one point when Raimi was mixing the film, he needed Darkman to yell Julie. There's like a moment where he, he's got to go Julie, and they had not recorded Liam Neeson's. Liam Neeson doing that so he called Bruce over he's like get in the booth I need you to yell Julie so Bruce Campbell actually looped the the voice of Liam Neeson yelling Julie in one scene and then Campbell looped all of Neeson's lines that needed to be changed for the TV version of the film 
So any, any how they'll have to like change certain lines because of profanity and stuff. Yeah. Uh, anytime that you hear that in the TV version, it's Bruce Campbell's voice huh. doing, doing like a Liam Neeson impression. <laughs> wow. How about that? Isn't that fun? That's fun. <laughs> anyway, after Darkman's success, Universal was happy to be in the Sam Raimi business and they offered to help fund his next film. Uh, this is a film that was already in the works before Darkman ever went into production and they would end up partnering with producer Dino De Laurentiis to help finance Raimi's next project, the third film in his Evil Dead series and the subject of our next episode. Uh, you guys all know what film we're talking about. It is, of course, Army of Darkness. Yes. Easy oh. to find. Go stream it. Go buy it. Great looking 4K just came out from Scream Factory. Uh, so, yes, there's a lot of uh, it's, it's a, a very easy film to find. And I'm very excited to revisit it and talk about it. There are four different cuts of that film. That's what I was <laughs> just about to bring up. <laughs> I will be watching the uh, I will definitely be watching the theatrical cut because that's the one that has the 4K restoration on it. Uh, I will probably also watch at least the director's cut. I don't know if I'll watch all four, but I'll at least watch the director's cut and the uh, and the original theatrical cut. So if you're if you only have time to watch one, which I totally understand, I would say watch the theatrical cut. Nice. Yeah, nice. that feels right. Um, one quote that I saw on that interview. And again, this, of course, you know, was before the movie was released and he went through a lot of shit. But I thought this quote was very Sam Raimi ish and fit with our series very much uh the folks that were interviewing him asked him uh how he was feeling being in the studio film and what you were doing and you know about being a, a what what he was doing with like being a film director and that sort of thing and what mark he hoped to leave on the world and i liked this he said i'm very happy at my job i'm very lucky that i get to write a story and give it to people to consider who can evaluate it and consider it for making it into a movie have an opportunity to entertain people i'm honored it is a much coveted job and i hope i don't mess it up i hope people are entertained by dark man what mark do i want to leave on the world i hope that i leave the world with a few good gags some interesting stories and some spitting hellfire just kidding <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Guy. I just love that guy. Nice, <laughs> nice. He, just, he seems like he's like a one of the little rascals. Like even as a <laughs> even as like a forty year old man, he's like a little rascal. Yeah, yeah. He's just fun. And he just you can't hate on. It's very old fashioned. That wholesomeness, you know, very, like just yeah. And by and by, dark man, he had adapted the process of wearing a shirt and tie on set all the time which oh I, I liam neeson talks about that was one of his favorite yeah. things about him yeah just how I, I don't know if he did he it on evil dead 2 but i know he's doing it on dark man and he did that because he's like this is a job this is i'm, I'm this is me showing respect to the people who came to work today basically my actors and my crew because hitchcock did the same thing and that's yeah. kind of where he got it um, classy very yeah, classy cl classy guy he still does it to this day shows up on set in a suit and tie you know, like he's going to an office job, but it's really just be, he's not being pretentious. He's just showing trying to show respect, you know, to the people that work for him, which I, yeah. I think is a, a, a is nice. Anyway, that's it for Dark Man. Join us on our next episode where we'll be talking about Army of Darkness. Where can you gentlemen be found on the Internet? I am at this is Gary Horn on all the social medias. You can find my uh, wrestling podcast at TIPW show. Um, also follow the NWA at NWA. Easy enough. 
Uh, as uh, we continue on uh, this year, uh, again, I'm not plugging my own stuff, but please uh, consider donating to my friend uh, Alyssa Fowler, who's raising uh, money for her and her daughter. They both have uh, cancer. Uh, we are doing a benefit comedy show here in Greenville, December 6th at the Radio Room. Um, if you're curious, uh, they also have a GoFundMe uh, page and uh, the title is uh, Cancer Treatments for Both my daughter and I, uh, we've got the link. Uh, I believe Justin's putting that in the show notes. Yeah. Um, so please, anything you can give. I know uh, stuff's tight right now and we're getting towards the holidays, but this family really needs your help. So if you can spare any uh, any money, it, it's going to a very, very good cause. And uh, we really, really appreciate it. Thanks. Well, I um, feel like, I shouldn't promote myself after For that. Real, but... I feel like a real dick <laughs> right now. But, but you can follow me at Justin underscore Bishop. Uh, you can. I'm on Twitter, Instagram. I, mean, I guess I'm still on Twitter. Maybe by time that this episode comes out, Twitter will have imploded. Who the fuck knows? <laughs> We're watching it go down in real time. So maybe if if Twitter's still around, follow me at Justin underscore Bishop. Even though I rarely use it anyway, uh, or Letterbox, which is where I am most active. Uh, of course, you can find the show at Cinema underscore Shock in all the uh, you know, normal places. We're on Facebook. We have the Cinema Shock Movie Club group on Facebook. Go join that. Go join our Discord. Go to cinemashock.net. You have links to all that stuff, including our merch. Buy a t-shirt. You know, we've got Christmas coming up. We've got all the holidays coming up. Uh, We'll be doing, there will be some holiday sales. I think we've got a big Black Friday sale coming up where you can get shirts, Cinema Shock shirts at a discount. And just keep in mind, we don't really, we don't don't make any money off those shirts. We're really just doing it because we like the idea of somebody wearing a cinema shock shirt we think it's pretty cool that you yeah. like the show enough to buy a shirt so uh you're supporting us not by not financially that way but just by getting the name and the logo out there into the wild and then maybe somebody will say hey what is cinema shock and then you say hey this is it's my favorite podcast and you should listen to it <laughs> uh, of course you can also find all of our episodes on our website as well and until next time may the wings of liberty never lose a feather what was the other line I was supposed to say? Extrapolate this dick. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <That's what you're... laughs> May the wings of liberty never lose a feather. Extrapolate this dick. <laughs> <laughs> and be excellent to each other. When I was young, my father made me work high steel. Just me and Johnny. No one else crazy enough to run around up here against the wind. 450 an hour. Call me crazy? Sometimes I miss it. Life on the keys. Five inches wide, 650 feet down. What a a bizarre monologue to choose. (laughs) I got to keep you guessing. Did anybody ever get bothered when they were showing the office space with Strack and like in the background, you'd see like they were building the area.
but it's like those fucking cranes on the top of the buildings were like constantly spinning. Like they were yeah. just like back and forth, back and forth. And I'm like, I don't think it works like that, man. Yeah, it not... <laughs> was like spinning in circles. It was dangerous. This was like drunk people there doing construction on your shit. <laughs> anyway. All right. Thanks, everybody.